Digital Drift, episode 65, recorded Monday, 13th of April, 2015, Jurassic Park. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. Senses are failing all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! No! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. This is one of the greatest and most important movies ever made. It's also one of my all-time favourites. I have been on tenterhooks, looking forward to giving it the digital drift treatment in the run-up to Jurassic World. Now, whether that fourth film is terrible or brilliant won't change how I feel about this original, and we'll be handling its sequels over the next few weeks as well. Joining me on the dinosaur trail are some of my very favourite people. My lovely wife and co-host, and I dare say dabbling paleobotanist, Dr. Sharon Shaw. <laughs> Thank you. A regular voice from Kane and Rince and the curator of the animation archives, amateur chaotician, Dr. Joshua Garrity. I, uh, I, uh, uh, thank <laughs> uh, you for I, having me on this podcast. <laughs> I gotta say, he is the most Jeff Goldblum that he's ever been in this film. <laughs> but yeah. And making sure the kids are well represented from the website and alternative view on movies, or alt view, and also of Game Burst. It's the brave and enthusiastic. Little Jimmy Perkins. Ta-da! I shouldn't. I mean, you must be 30 by now. <laughs> I just, like, you know, you've always Almost. been the younger one for, for me, but, uh, you know, I just yeah. forget how long I've been podcasting. But uh, yeah. uh, James Perkins, thank you and welcome back. I think the last time you were on with the Mass Effect shows and then before that, Alien. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long, long time. Thank you for having me. But thank you for having me back. It would appear that to get you on, we need to have creatures or aliens of some kind. <laughs> yeah, it would seem that way. Yeah, and at least none of you were the blood-sucking lawyer, by the way. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> now, what a lot of people don't realise was what a reasonably priced production Jurassic Park was. Anybody want to guess at the budget, or does anybody know? I don't 16? know, but I, yeah. Ooh. Uh, Josh, do you want to say that first, and then Sharon can come in with with knowing roughly what it is anyway? Um, I, I mean, I was going to say what Sharon said, uh, 60 million. That was a total guess on my part, by the way. I had no idea. <laughs> James, do you want to guess higher or lower than 60 million? Uh, I, I'm going to go for 70. It was 63 million. Wow. It's a really... Wow. Just like it's pretty tidy, especially by today's standards. Especially by the fact that the CGI is like the benchmark for the nineties. Oh yes, 
And uh, anyone know how much it has made theatrically since release in 93? Now, I remember this was on release for a long, long time. It was in mm. the cinema for ages. It didn't come out on video for ages. It didn't come out on DVD for ages. But uh, it's we, also going to be released in 3D as well. Yeah, we, we re- uh, it'll be taking into consideration the anniversaries and re-releases and all that sort of stuff as well. Anyone want to guess? Lots. Uh, <laughs> 900 million? Pretty close. It's just over a billion. Really? <laughs> oh, wow. That's incredible. Now, here's the galling thing. Jurassic Park, the Lost World Jurassic Park costs 73 million, so that's 10 more than the original. But Jurassic Park 3, anyone who's seen it recently, cost 93 million. How mm. and why? And where did that money go? <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll talk about Jurassic Park 3 in a few weeks' time. Tia Leone will only eat steak. <laughs> she got to have some extra cheese on her waffle. Somehow, Spielberg and company, with this original, managed to make a film about dinosaurs which featured only a few minutes of footage and special effects, yet utterly convinced us that there was an island in which dinosaurs exist. There are various reasons for the strength of this sustained magic trick and the power it still holds. Firstly, the mystery and holding back of the dinosaur while explaining in a fun and interesting way how everything works, allowing us to draw our own picture while still itching to see them actually on screen. Secondly, the intense conviction of the actors performing the characters who were new to the island sells us the wonder. But in hand with that, the blasé and often offhand way the park staff regard the annoyingly obtuse dinosaurs convinces us that they are realer still. This one-two punch of the amazing and the mundane describing the same thing is the rarely discussed secret weapon of this original. Couple that with astonishing use of special effects, giving us solid, practical animatronics just enough for us to believe that the animals are there on screen, and in fact that they are real animals, such as the subtlety of their movement. And this was augmented by some of the earliest CGI for when the dinosaurs had to be more active. CG that both pushed the envelope in terms of what was possible on screen and still, largely, holds up today, even in the broad daylight scenes. The production team approaches their dinosaur models with total faith, unveiling each of them in their element and pacing the story just right to refocus on each one in turn. All the dinosaurs interact with their environment, further selling the magic trick and making this the model for how to convince an audience that something which is not, is. This was such a huge game changer, it's going to be hard to quantify its knock-on effect in the years since. Suffice to say that along with Terminator 2, which we will shortly be reviewing, it redefined the world of cinema in the 1990s. And when it comes down to it, we like the likeable characters, we are suitably and comedically annoyed by the annoying ones, and we're challenged by those who make us feel more than one thing at once, which is several, including Malcolm, and most notably of all, Hammond. It's a colossal and perfectly executed theme park ride. It's a pure adventure story, and it poses mostly believable science? Question mark? Even the stuff that's been subsequently disproved or was always guesswork, it presents philosophical questions about science and the nature of discovery, and makes no final judgement on this, which works to its eternal benefit. Yes, man shouldn't, in all practicality or ethical fields, recreate dinosaurs, but the astonishing and inspiring nature of what occurs when he does is undeniable. 
This tone is where it departs the most from the Source novel by Michael Crichton, a firm favourite with many readers, but absolutely in the camp of irresponsible science sowing disaster. There's a lot more horror, there's more savagery, less likeable characters, and a doom-laden finale with a much higher body count, including the deaths of Henry Wu, John Hammond, Ian Malcolm, and every dinosaur on the island getting napalmed. A different director like David Fincher or Stanley Kubrick could have made something cold and baleful. Instead, Spielberg pulls off what may in fact be his magnum opus, balancing in a way Jaws, E.T. and Raiders almost but don't quite achieve, a film for every child who has ever picked up a dinosaur picture book and was transported to a world long before man's existence. And this is not just because it delivered us dinosaurs, but because it made them real and wonderful and terrifying but with a level of fragility woven into John Williams' superb score that on some subconscious level mirrors our own deep-seated anxiety over our decidedly limited window of success as a species upon this earth. So that's just my intro. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Hmm. That's going to be tough to follow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I wanted to kind of encapsulate it first, and then we could sort of say, and this is where that applies uh, later on. I'm sorry if I sort of like took some of the best stuff, but um, I just I fucking love this film, and I really wanted to say just get that said about it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that, um, that definitely sells it just on that. <laughs> I'm going to start with a question actually, because I have no definitive answer for this, but I have some guesses. Um, I, I has anyone else read the book? Yes. No. No. No, right. Um, okay, I've got some ideas as to why the book didn't really captivate people in the same way. I mean, it's a hugely popular book. Because it's horrible. Apart from the fact that it's Basically. horrible. Basically. <laughs> See, I always hold it up in, in uh, comparison with Carnosaur, which is horrible as a film and really horrible as a book. The, the thing I would say with the book, though, and the, the difference between uh, it, its ability to capture the imagination it comes down to whose imaginations it's trying to capture. The book is very definitely not for children. Yeah. It is, it's very unpleasant um, at best. There are some scenes which are um, decidedly nightmare-inducing, or at least they were for me when I read it, and I think I was about, I must have been about 14 or 15 when I read it. Well, I was um, 30. So, yeah. And so I think by um, by tweaking it so that it could be aimed squarely at a demographic that's more well known for having a capturable imagination. Well, all the family um, is a nice sort of sweeping way of putting it. Well, yeah, exactly. And and this is this is Spielberg's home turf as well. Um, you know the uh, the. Uh, the the childhood wonder of it hmm. is something that uh, you know that that's not Michael Crichton's thing. It, you know, it, it's it's not going to be. Um, but we know Spielberg can do this. We know he can do it well. And with the collection of um, tools and and talent that he was given to put it together, it's. It's very impressive that it was so popular, but I don't think it's surprising. Mm. Oh, my God, the talent behind this as well. Mm. Jeez. Um, I, I've got... Uh, to, to relate it back to books, from what I said about um, it like appealing to children or, or people who had been children who looked at, at picture books, 
what there's something about dinosaurs in pictures. Imagine as a child reading about dinosaurs but never seeing what they look like. Imagine having them described to you as like a, a three-year-old and then a five-year-old and then a ten-year-old, but never actually seeing a picture. Maybe you could like draw one for yourself. There's something about the fact that because it's not just you know, use your imagination and imagine a dragon. These things actually really did exist. Yeah. So pictures paint those thousand words, give us a really strong image, almost always from a very young age. Because kids love dinosaurs because they're monsters. But there's kind of a, a balance to them. It's like you got the goodies, which are the herbivores, and the baddies, which are the uh, the carnivores. I mean, so somehow that's that's the way it works out when you're a kid. Carnivores. Uh, you, you still root for the baddies. I suppose it's kind of a Shades of Grey scenario. But, um, like, you know, when you see Fantasia from a very young age or The Land Before Time. Carry on, Josh. Josh. I mean, the, the thing that I, I, I love about this film, um, which what I, ga- I haven't read the book personally, but I'm, I'm gathering from what I've heard from other people that the, the dinosaurs in the, in the books are portrayed as monsters. Whereas in this film, its biggest strength is they're, they're treated like animals. Yeah. And even though the Tyrannosaurus and the Velociraptors are all terrifying, they're terrifying in the same way a lion or a bear is terrifying. It's not after you because it's full of hate or malice. It's after you because it's running on animal instinct. It Mm. needs to eat. It needs to survive. Um, And that's a really tricky balancing act, you know, to have like, even, I mean, like alien is a great film, but that is a monster film. Yeah. Like no, no, make no, you know, there's that. I don't see the alien as an organism in the traditional sense. I do see that as a symbol, as a, a creature of malice. Whereas the Tyrannosaurus, it's just a big bear. And, like, it gets easily distracted by a flare. Oh, what's that over there? Like, it's, it's <laughs> dumb. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly dangerous. Like, it's incredibly dangerous, but it's subject to the same flaws as a big, dumb predator is in our world, yeah. which, I, it, which really sells you on the world and sells you on these things being animals rather than monsters. I think we've kind of hit the nail on the head. This is not a monster movie, and that is what makes it so great. I've been watching the special features on the Blu-ray disc as well, mm-hmm. and Steven Spielberg actually said he he set out not to make a monster movie, mm-hmm. and the fact that he's achieved that is is great in itself. And like you said, it's it's they are treated as animals, and it's their sheer power and their sheer size that is what's intimidating to. the the kids and the other characters in in the film Um, and it's not their fault it's just how they were made so like you said they're running on animal instincts and we've we've said as well about the the wonder that is uh that the characters experience and the audience themselves as well it's kind of the the performances especially with the triceratops and when Mm. they when they see that triceratops uh injured and well ill um it brings that grounded sort of human nature back to it. It takes away from the fact there's a big T-Rex somewhere here, mm-hmm. but we're, we're going we're gonna to take this moment to take you on that emotional ride and then take you out of that, but not so much as to make it terrifying. Well, up, 
Step away! Gatekeeper! So the opening incident, uh, and that's the the raptor just tear assing through and uh, and taking that uh, guy out. Um, now when I watch it, I think you need clamps for that thing. <laughs> just like move the cage up to the raptor enclosure and then clamp it to the wall, just like with with steel things so that he cannot move that cage. Because the reason the raptor actually gets hold of that guy is because he jogs the cage backwards. She. Uh, and it's it's so obvious when you watch it, something terrible is going to happen. But I mean, they're, they're stuck. Every single scene in this film does multiple things at once. It almost always does these three things. It shows you what's going on. It shows you how it's going on. And it shows you the mentality of the people that are allowing it to go on like that. So, for example... When this accident takes place, there is hubris from the from the get go. They don't really anticipate that the raptors are going to be that uh, violent in their movements. And actually, Sharon, you mentioned one thing about the um, uh, the uh, mosquito blood that they extracted, which we have, by the way, proved more recent times is absolute bollocks. What, what's the what, uh, why doesn't that actually work? Is it that you can't get DNA from blood? Um, well, it's it not that you, from... it's not that you can't you, you can't get DNA from red blood cells. Gotcha. Um, if if I'm remembering this correctly, and this is from my um, uh, forensic training, which was very basic. Um, that was before the CSIs, though. Well, indeed, um, but um, the the DNA part that actually supplies the genetic code um, right. is only in the cells which are specific to that organism. Right. So um, you, you can get DNA from blood, but it comes from things like skin cells and um, other cells that is, that's mixed in with blood. I can't remember. So what the mosquito would, would have actually had to take a chunk out plasma. of a, a uh, Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, I think you, you feasibly could do it, but to emphasize the fact that it's coming from blood yeah. is, um, is an oversimplification. And I think the odds of you being able, or the odds of them being able able to get um, a complete DNA code from blood that's been ingested by a mosquito um, would yeah. be very, very slim. And the, I mean, the other thing as well that, that it struck me would be um, very difficult about the manufacturing dinosaurs in this way is that when they extract the blood from the mosquito, they've got no idea what <laughs> dinosaur they're going to be creating. And it kind of depends on the mosquito having only feasted on one type of dinosaur yep. because if they get blood from a mosquito that happened to have drunk from a velociraptor and a t-rex oh my god it's and a, a triceratops all on the same day you just describe what jurassic you know, world is about how, how do they then <laughs> filter that out and um you know yeah. extract the the specific dna from the specific dinosaurs that they're after why would you it not would want to make a triceratops raptor <laughs> well indeed <laughs> but it would be particularly in the early stages um it would be, it would have been a very very hit and miss process as far as i can 
work out mm. and um also what do you do if the uh i mean these mosquitoes frozen in or um, fossilized in amber it could have bitten richard simmons you could recreate richard simmons it could. His suit. <laughs> um, but part the, frog richard simmons getting whole insects that are usable is not the most common thing in the world yeah. and you know, you. Well, that's what that digger does. He, well, true, he but the then animal. are they are they not all going to be the same type of DNA? And you don't know until you've um, coded it and and replicated it what kind of dinosaur you're going to get. It's kind of like a, a like a pokeball. Like you know, what's it going to be? Exactly. Oh, it's what what's the betting that the first several billion dollars were wasted on producing tiny little baby crocodile type creatures over and over and over again? Yeah. Navigalamimus, <laughs> I've just realised that the last two digital drift shows that I've been on talking about movies have both involved DNA of some kind. Nice. Alien DNA and Alien Dino DNA. Oh my god. Midge, <laughs> you are the DNA mascot. Not again. Um, but I, I love the fact that this comes from a book where Crichton really did like think hard about it. He didn't just go, uh, pff, magic wand science. He actually, I mean, even if it, if it was like, Technically, you know, it's been it, it's not wholly accurate. He he, they lay down thanks to the the solid foundation of the book a process for you that you go oh, okay right. So it goes like that that to that to that to that, and then boom, dinosaurs. Um, That's true. It doesn't need to be realistic enough to convince geneticists. It yeah, just needs to be realistic just, enough to convince it, the audience. Yeah, it fits within the internal logic of the film. Mm. Yeah, we're making excuses, but at the same time, it it, it doesn't sound like a. <sighs> stupid science yeah but um completely ridiculous so yeah the, the opening incident as i said to get that one out of the way and then Gennaro um talking to the chap regarding the amber and there's that like that lovely kind of you know like foundations and you know he finds the uh the thing in the amber just so that you hearken back to that later when you're told about it so like it sort of sows a little seed in your mind uh, and then you get Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler. And when I was a kid, I really, really liked Alan Grant. Now, as an adult, I think he's kind of stiff. But uh, as a kid, I was like, yeah, I really wish I'd had a teacher like that. The, the fact that he mercilessly just traumatizes this fat kid. Shuts him right down. <laughs> yeah. It's quite terrifying, actually. He's more, he's more terrifying in that scene than the dinosaurs are, really. Yeah, he's more terrifying in that scene than he is in uh, Event Horizon. But... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, there's, uh, uh, he, he's not one of those guys who's naturally kids are going to warm to. So he had to kind of prove himself several times throughout the movie so that you'd be like, yeah, okay, you know what, I, I like Dr. Grant. So, you know, he, was, uh, he became a hero because of his um, slight, uh, like, he's not an action man and he's forced to be one in this. To a point, though, kids are a bit like cats in mm. that they will often be drawn to the people who don't like them. Yeah. Because they're not going to patronise them. Yeah. And I do love the way that he's not patronising. And again, like I said, I, I always wish I had a teacher like him. And I, I immediately fell in love with Ellie uh, from, from the word go. I mean, I, I was 13. This was my first date, folks. I, uh, I was at the, uh, the Oxted Plaza Cinema. And I think it was, it was a matinee on a Saturday. And it was like, oh, that'll be two pounds. It was like, two pounds? Seriously? This is daylight robbery. You do realize this is Jurassic Park. As in, I felt like I was getting too much there. And I was like, do you want some extra popcorn, love? But um, no, no, it was a very nice girl. I mean, if you're going to go for a first date, this is a memorable one. 
Anyone else got a, a memorable first date movie? Muppets um, Treasure Island. <laughs> Mine's not memorable, but the, the the first time I took a girl to the cinema, we saw Monster in Law. Ew. <laughs> she got to pick. I wish I never let her. What would you have chosen? What was also available? Oh, I don't know. I'll have to look it up. I can't remember off the top of my head. Josh? The first film me and Kat went to see together was Gravity, which uh, (laughs) was a good choice. Yeah. In IMAX, too, which was brilliant. Was that her or you who chose that one? It was me, but uh, she loved it as well. Excellent. Um, Sharon, what was the first film we went to? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Technically, Uh, the first film we saw... Uh, Final Destination. Was yeah, Final Destination. (laughs) (laughs) But that wasn't really a date. There was a big group of us. Followed by, I think it was Um, X Men and then High Fidelity. uh, Yeah, did we see X Men first? Yeah. That would have been the first one we saw as a couple. Oh, no, actually, uh, High Fidelity then X Men, because High Fidelity was the first film we saw as a couple, because you were still pretty raw regarding the the, the previous breakup. And. um, Walked uh, out. Yeah. The actual first film we ever saw on DVD together as a couple was Out of Sight. Yes. Nice. Good choice. Anyway, back That's the man who chose it. <laughs> to Jurassic Park. Um, yeah, Ellie Sattler, uh, played by Laura Dern. Why wasn't Laura Dern in more? She's a yeah, great actress. She's fantastic. I mean, more recently, uh, um, she's in Wild. She All played right. Reese Witherspoon's mum. And she was absolutely terrific in that. And this was a case of because... Well, like you just said, why hasn't she been in more? I, I saw her and went, I recognise her and that name. Where do I recognise it from? And then I watched this for the purpose of this podcast and went, of course. I haven't seen her in pretty much anything since. This is incredible. Why Why has she not done more? She's terrific. One of the things I especially like about their relationship is that it's kind of subtle. When you're a kid, you're like, are they going out? Are they boyfriend and girlfriend? Are they husband and wife even? Uh, it's clear that Alan's kind of jittery about being a parent, but they really don't rub it in your face if you're a kid. It's just there enough if you're an adult so you can get the quiet stuff going through and you get that Alan's irked when Ian starts perving up to her. But um, yeah, yeah there's a, it's a nice, quiet kind of um, understanding going between them and they don't really they don't push each other in the same way aside from uh, Ellie uh, encouraging the kids to hang out with Alan. And that lovely little smile she gives him after um, after th- th- that comes out. <sighs> I was struck by um, how rarely we get to see a relationship at this stage in movies. Yes. You always see a relationship either at the beginning or like at the end during a breakup or what have yeah. you. But you, you never get to see right smack in the middle where everything's going smoothly. Like yeah. it's it was nice to see and. Yeah, and as you say, it's really subtle, and I, they have a lot of chemistry on screen together, those two, and it's it's a shame that um, they weren't in more things together. Where I, I'd be really curious to, to hear some interviews with Laura, uh, Laura Dern to see hmm. what happened, because she seemed like she had a good career going you know, ahead of her, and then it just stopped, so I don't know what happened there. Usually, if it's a, an actress that she, they decide to be a, focus on being a parent... Um, yeah. at that crucial age when they're just getting like, you know, they could still get the, the, the roles as the sort of the romantic lead. So it's, it's, it's a son of a bitch that they basically have to decide one or the other. And, and, uh, yeah. it's, uh, pretty much across the board for a lot of, uh, ladies who have to decide between professional career and, uh, and being a, a parent. There's um, also the fact that if you're not 
drop dead perfect 10. Mm. You hit a certain age and it's going to be difficult to be cast in anything that's not the mum in a family-friendly movie. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you say about romantic leads, I, I can't see them casting Laura Dern in the early 2000s in a romantic lead, in all mm. honesty. She's, she's too... Um, she, she looks nice and she will be known for being the nice lady in Jurassic Park. Um, and, you know, I think she possibly missed the, uh, the appeal of being the next big thing. Mm. which um, somebody younger, I mean, if you look at what happens with um, careers like uh, Kristen Stewart and Jennifer Lawrence, yeah. you're in the thing that gets you to hit it big and then it's over and over and over and over and over again. And Scarlett Johansson, similarly, yeah. you cram as much you as you can in yeah. until they decide that you're not the hot young chick anymore. And then, you know, you either move on to doing more serious stuff or you go off and have kids if you're british they can make you a dame and then you can come back and get oscars up the arse that's gonna take a while though (laughs) (laughs) sharon you you mentioned that she's known as the uh the nice lady from jurassic park uh in one of the interviews i've watched with her uh she said that she she was approached um shortly after around uh well for for the next 10-15 years after the film came out that kids would come up to and say were you the lady who stuck your hand in the dinosaur poopy yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that might actually have been contributory. People she be like, oh, yeah. After that scene, you know, guys, you can hire her. <laughs> it's just the way that that's how it some wasn't of the kids real the well, <laughs> It's just funny. Anyway, but that might have actually put off casting agents. They were like, I, I can't look at you, Laura. I can't not think of the enormous pile. Apart from certain <laughs> casting agents, which she may have wanted to steer clear of. Yeah. Well, maybe dinosaurs have more in common with present day birds than they do with reptiles. Look at the pubic bone, turned backward, just like a bird. Look at the vertebrae, full of air sacs and hollows, just like a bird. And even the word raptor means bird of prey. That doesn't look very scary. <laughs> More like a six-foot turkey. <laughs> turkey, huh? Oh, no. Okay. Try to imagine go. yourself in the Cretaceous period. You get your first look at this six-foot turkey as you enter a clearing. He moves like a bird, lightly bobbing his head. And you keep still because you think that maybe his visual acuity is based on movement like T-Rex. And he'll lose you if you don't move. But no, not Velociraptor. You stare at him, and he just stares right back. And that's when the attack comes. Not from the front, but from the side. From the other two raptors, you didn't even know were there. Because Velociraptor's a pack hunter, you see. He uses coordinated attack patterns, and he is out in force today. And he slashes at you with this. Six-inch retractable claw, like a razor, on the middle toe. He doesn't bother to bite your jugular like a lion, say. No, no. He slashes at you here, or here. Or maybe across the belly, spilling your intestines point is you are alive when they start to eat you so you know try to show a little respect okay so yeah alan and actually now that you mention it josh with the whole you know couples in the middle of a a strong 
relationship or at least a uh, uh, an even relationship i went out of my way to do exactly that and this is not necessarily self-promotion but just in terms of like this film has been very inspirational to me um for this respect and at least one other uh when i did new century um annie and uh butler uh in the middle of a uh, an ongoing relationship and there isn't all of that romantic sort of like like drama and and uh, challenging yeah. each other uh, uh Conflict, uh, with, yeah, I think with that is conflict. What it comes down to um, it, it's it's a rare screenwriter that can portray not conflict and mm. still keep it interesting. Uh, yes. Similarly, um, I took a huge amount of cues uh, on on this, um, just making the uh, creatures animals and as uh, being able to understand that the creatures existed when the camera wasn't on them. That you know, to be able to picture the creature in repose for when I crafted the Wendigo. So the velociraptors went a lot into those creatures, to those beings. Um, so, yeah, this, is, this was kind of my, my uh, 101 for how to make um, creatures interesting and terrifying at the same time. Um, I hope I succeeded. So speaking of interesting and ever so slightly terrifying, John Hammond, <laughs> played by the wonderful Richard Attenborough, Sir Richard Attenborough. Um, it seems oddly appropriate that his brother is... So David Attenborough, the, the, yeah. the, the wildlife documentarian, because yeah. it just it feels like this is, you know, well, I'll produce the wildlife this time. Uh, wouldn't it be awesome to have like a David, I mean, I've, I know there's been walking with dinosaurs, but like a David Attenborough, like Jurassic Park documentary. I, I definitely pay for that. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. Nice just with exactly with BBC production values, like more so even than uh, than uh, Walking with Dinosaurs. Uh, anyway, so John Hammond, uh, I think when you're a kid, you like him because he's this sort of you know kindly old uh, un- avuncular grandpa type, and he's rich and he's very nice to the kids, and you like him. And then when you get older, I'm sorry, I keep talking with this. I've just got so much to say about this movie. When you get older, you start to think, John, John, what are you doing? With us watching it now, you're thinking, what was he thinking doing this? But it goes back to the the wonder and excitement of discovery. Yeah. And yeah. he's he's been obviously blinded by that and just keeps putting all of his enthusiasm into it, not thinking of the possibilities of a bad outcome, which obviously does come into fruition later on in the film. But, but like you said, it captures the wonder. He is the wondrous grandpa figure. Mm. He's great. He's excited about everything. And you think, this is great until you see it yeah. from a different perspective thinking hang on something's going wrong yeah i mean they the thing is even though as an adult you you realize the stupidity of what he's doing you're still I, i'm still completely sold on the motive i i get why he's doing this because you see those dinosaurs and they're just magical and they're beautiful but they're creatures of another time they they were not they were not evolved to uh, exist in the environment that we exist in today they they will clash with the world that we live in today now john john hammond is so taken with the mythology the magic that he can't see the reality of the situation and i think as a child that's why that character is so compelling Mm -hmm. because as a child you are so easily captured by the magic and mythology of dinosaurs that the reality uh, slips your mind 
Uh, I think I seem to remember in the book he just sort of comes off as a bit of a nut and uh, yeah. like uh, like way too pushy about getting his way all the time. Um, yeah. uh, I, no, correct me, folks, if you if you're fans of the book, I'm sure there are many fans of the book out there. It's it's held in very high regard. Uh, it he didn't have that kind of Walt Disney thing going on quite so much. Yeah. He didn't have the twinkle. He was more. Um, well, this is something that Crichton worked out that there is no real practical application for dinosaurs the only way you could actually fund this and it would require an enormous bankroll is for the entertainment industry so you pretty much have to make him walt disney yeah um it it has to be someone who believes in what they're doing you can't just have um generos we're gonna make a fortune with this place that i mean there's other ways to turn lots of money into tons of money you know, this is this is a, a money sink. In fact, the, the what's what's John Hammond's catchphrase? Spares no expense. Spared no expense. The idea being that the more expense spent, the more control you have. You know, you you've got you you only hire the best, and you only um uh, you know get, you get the best of uh like you don't cut corners, and somehow this will work. But he like, did, didn't he? Yeah. Think about it. What's the one place he spared the expense? Dennis Nedry. Indeed. But that was a that was an ethical matter. We never get to find out what Nedry did to cost him to basically dock him money in Hammond's eyes. But he was trying to get Nedry to be an adult, and unfortunately, Nedry was a child, a greedy child at that. Don't get cheap on me, Dodson. You shouldn't use my name. Yeah, speaking of which, Dennis Nedry's uh, next, and uh, he, he gets 1.5 million for the embryos, which actually, on on reflection, is kind of low. Yeah. By modern day standards, he'd be asking for like 5 million. And, uh, and uh, as, you know, for the greatest discovery of that time, it hmm. must be, you'd expect something more like 100 million or something like that, because, yeah. like, you can't get these embryos anywhere else they're the only place you could get them so just over one million seems like well if you can get the embryos that would be great and it's such a cock and maybe plan as well it's so dependent on nedry being able to get to the dock in lightning speed in the middle of what turns out to be a tropical storm but even without the tropical storm it's like he doesn't even know his way around the island he spent most of his time on that island in that room eating ho-hos yeah. I would I would posit that Nedry has no idea how to negotiate mm. because what's the betting? I mean part of part of his whole argument is that his skills which at that particular point in time were fairly um specialized. I mean not that I'm saying that you know people who can run entire computer security like said, systems these nerd. days are, are to a penny. Um but um he probably could have when he signed up to work on the island, he probably could have asked for a higher paid contract. And if Hammond really was sparing no expense, he'd have paid it. Mm. He could have asked for more money for the embryos. And this other mysterious company that is never named would probably have paid it to get 
caught up on what was it, ten years worth of research. Yeah. So I. It's think- not just the research; it's the the actual the the computers required to actually. It's not just like if if, if he just got the uh, the concept of like just get the blood out of the amber and then you've got the dinosaurs. It's the stuff in between which Hammond invested the amount of the money in for InGen, like all of the computer stuff to basically fill in that genetic code. Indeed. Yeah. But the the essence of that being that that uh, Nedry, for having not asked for more money in the first place, then decides to throw a hissy fit at everybody around him. He blames everybody but himself for when things go wrong. Yeah, and that happens repeatedly throughout his whole um, side plot. He's the worst of the clever people in this. Mm. Let me just uh, check because uh, the um, actual company that. Uh, uh, was paying for this industrial espionage, which is what it is. Uh, actually, I believe turned up in the uh, sequel novel. It's the opposite of InGen, the other, the, their competitors. What are they called? You know what? I'm just going to look for The Lost World. I don't think Wayne Knight's been in anything recently as well either, has he? He had a pretty good career, actually, in yeah. terms of like, you know, doing. He does lots of voiceover work. He did a lot yeah. of stuff for Disney. Yeah, I just, whenever, whenever I see him now, I just think of Space Jam. Mm. <laughs> Toy uh, Story for me. Chicken Man. Yeah, yeah, as well. Biosyn. Biosyn. Good lord. S Y O Sin. Biosyn. Resident Evil. <laughs> Uh, and uh, yeah, that's Dodson. Dodson, we got Dodson here. Dodson here. We got Dodson here. Nice hat. What are you trying to look like? A secret agent. And this is such a quotable film as well. The whole way through, it's got a really tight script. Uh, it's uh, screenplay by Michael Crichton, David Kep, who uh, actually has he's done some some rubbish in his time, but he was really on point at this point. What was that film which he did, adapted, which was not fantastic? Uh, more recently, Men in Black Three. Oh God! Yep, Angels and Demons. That's really surprising because I think Jurassic Park's biggest strength is that it has such, as you say, such a really tight script. Not just in terms of dialogue. I I think it does a lot with visual storytelling as well. You know, like it doesn't waste any time. Like one scene that I was going to bring up. Uh, I'm, I may be skipping ahead a little bit here, but it's worth bringing up now. Okay. There's a there's a scene in the helicopter where they're uh, trying to fasten their seatbelts, mm. and there's trouble with the the seatbelt. And then instead of like you know, oh god, I can't I can't do the seatbelt, he just ties it, yeah. and that is a really quick way to demonstrate, ah, he's a pragmatist. He can solve problems really quickly. And it's over in a flash, but it conveys that information that the the audience needs to know. And this this film is filled with stuff like that, where characterization is done on the fly really quickly um, without you, like... It happens and you register it, but it's so quick that it doesn't feel like it's getting in the way of the main plot. It's it's really sharp and really tight. Yeah. It, it's lean. It, there's no fat here. There's no wasted time. It just it just moves. It's 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 one of those examples of a script where you go, you couldn't cut any more out of this film yeah. uh, if you tried. It, it's, it's two just, hours and six minutes, but it just whizzes by. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
And during that scene, actually, um, you've got John Hammond nannying um, uh, Alan and going, look, well, I've landed before you get it right. And the, um, the, you, uh, Malcolm manages to, tie, to do his seatbelt in like really smoothly in, in no time at all and then smirks at Alan having to tie uh, two opposite ends together. Um, it, it just, so, just so you know, like Ian's on top and he's going to be basically sort of like being cool while Alan is uh, not really able to... Um, get on top of the situation, and that's going to continue throughout the uh, the rest of the film until Ian comes a cropper to a T Rex. It's it's sort of the that's the start of the the sort of love triangle which is put mm. within the film, and like Josh said, it's just these nice little nuggets that are just chucked in there yeah. uh, that really adds to it. But like I said, it's it's the start of the love triangle which really sort of progresses as the uh, as the film goes on. Something I noticed as well, just while we're on this topic, is that almost all characterization takes place when they're in a vehicle onto mm, the next mm. major story point. Yeah. I thought that was a really clever way of, uh, you know, putting all that stuff in there. Right, we're in a car, let's have some characterization. Right, we're in a helicopter, let's have some characterization. It was, yeah, just like really. Filling that time that could have been really dull and boring, oh, here's some helicopter shops, with, um, you know, funny, um, really dynamic character moments. Revealing stuff. But then the fact that that happens at those times which which would otherwise be potentially wasted means they don't have to fill dinosaur time with characterization because it's already done. And it's been done in such a... Uh, a visual and efficient way that you you almost don't even realise that that characterisation has gone into your brain. All you know is yeah. you feel a certain way about this character. Yeah. you got uh, uh, Malcolm and uh, Hammond are the uh, ones who are on top of things. They seem to know what they're doing. Malcolm, it would appear, knew roughly what was going on when, when he went in there. He's still kind of taken aback when he sees the brachiosaur, but he's like, he's less... He's not overawed like the other two. And um, uh, Hammond is just like dancing from foot to foot like Willy Wonka. He can't wait for these guys to see his dinosaurs. And, you know, he's smirking and and, uh, gloating at Gennaro before he's even got proof of concept yet. Um, But obviously Grant and Sattler, like specifically Grant, is way out of his depth. He's very vulnerable. He feels awkward. He's not... uh, He's your introvert. Basically, he, he he's um, I, mean, he, he, I would say he's more at home on the dig. But since they bring in computers for the dig, which, by the way, have been more and more prevalent since uh, the this film came out uh, and he's not very good with them. In fact, he destroys them just by touching them, which they could they could even have like followed up on that later on, because it's it's something I completely uh, under, like I, I sympathize with just like touching and like, he touched it. And then just goes on the fritz immediately. It's almost like he's kind of a dinosaur himself in some degree. So, um, uh, what the the there's a, a reference in the um, when they get the visitors center. You know, I think we're out of a job. Not to be extinct. It's actually something that um, Dennis Buren said uh, when that, that he was looking at the new CGI effects and that we are out of a job now because we mm. can't do stop motion anymore. Uh, and uh, it, there was that slight sense with some of the people on board the project that what they were now breaking this new ground was going to actually put them out of a job. Which so there's this there's this frisson to the project, which is kind of wonderful. 
And fortunately, they were able to move forwards, and and, and uh, most of them uh, managed to maintain being at the top of their field. I mean, Stan Winston just went from strength to strength. Um, but yeah, the arrival at the island, this is the beginning of the ride, basically. This is when you're on the train towards Disney, as I understand it. Like, you're sort of, like, approaching the the park, and sort of, like, this is when the ride begins. And fortunately, these guys don't have to queue, but... Um, <laughs> You get that wonderful so I'm going to talk about the score at the end, but just the score here, just in terms of like giving you stuff to to whistle later on. It's wonderful. And this gears up to the the first side of an actual dinosaur, which they very carefully held back on. This scene gets to me every single time, more and more as I get older, because. The further and further away I get from that sense of childlike wonder, the more and more it becomes a sort of a hazy, rosy thing to look back on. That, that time when we were last overawed with something. Because we get delivered so much spectacle on a daily basis now. Everything's trying to get our attention. Um, you remember how we talked about Mark Hamill selling Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back? Uh, it falls to the humans here to sell us the Brachiosaur. Because if they just basically sort of panned over and went, that's a Brachiosaur, that's pretty awesome, let's carry on then. That would have been a non-scene. Instead, yeah. it's the most significant moment in Dr. Alan Grant's life. He, yeah, just, it, it's, it completely wins him. Yeah. Like, he collapses to the ground and is... Uh, the moment where he, where he says um, they do move in herds, yeah. like that, really touches me because it's like it's like having some, your your life's work um, vindicated. You yeah. know, just it, I I was on the right tracks, and and look at these things; they're so beautiful. Mm. And obviously, this this wonderful moment makes way for utter horror later on, <laughs> but you need, you need this moment because you need to understand why so many people would dedicate themselves to this, why so much money was spent on this because to, you see these scientists reactions and you go, Oh God, right. I get it. Like this is a life changing moment for yeah. everyone involved. It's almost like these days, I wonder if kids would really be filled with the same amount of wonder. Because Depends how the actors sell it. No, no, I mean, like, if kids really did get to go to a dinosaur park. Oh, right, okay. These kids today. I mean, I know, I know back in 93, if I'd been allowed, it would have been the, the just, the just again, life-changing stuff. But there's been so much in between. It would, yeah. There would almost be an unreality about it. Like, oh, the things you can do with CG. No, Timmy, that's that's real. Oh, okay. So when do I get to go back to my hotel room and get Wi-Fi? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I, I don't know. I don't know how they'll sell it in Jurassic World, but um, there's something that I think John Williams mentioned that he kind of wanted to make the music sound like it was part of, like when you're going into a giant cathedral, like a sort of a, in reverence to these, you know, great, the like this these architectural beings of a bygone age and this kind of and it's got that reverence to it yeah when that happens and it's maybe just because the, the camera is pitched so low looking up so high just really to take in the full scale of it 
and uh, the interaction with the tree absolutely key. Yeah. Um, it's it's magic. It is absolute pure cinematic magic. And um, I have in more recent times had people uh, say, you know what, this film's kind of dated, not all that much anymore. And I just think, what film are you watching? Exactly. I think um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take this opportunity to, to hark on this point now. It's This film is 21 years old. 22 it, years old. 22 years old now. It looks incredible. It mm-hmm. holds up so well. We've said as well that this really was the benchmark for these effects and everything like that and everything that has come afterwards. But watching it back, especially on Blu-ray, it, it looks incredible. The yeah. the animatronics that they that they built and put all that effort into moving just to make it more lifelike, it does. It looks incredibly real. And with a lot of older films that get remastered onto blu-ray and everything mm. like that when you see these special effect shots or or shots with um animatronics rather than cgi you can tell but with this it's seamless absolutely seamless and it looks just incredible it blew my mind re-watching it again because i haven't seen it for a few years but mm. re-watching it for the purpose of this show i was just blown away once again and that is why this film is so magic well, they they make very clever decisions on when to use CGI yeah. and when to use the animatronic puppets yeah. Yeah. because all the CGI very is from, little a CGI. Dis- from a from a distance. Mm. You are always seeing the the CGI creations from afar, whereas all the animatronic creatures are close up to the camera, which means that when you're close up, you don't get the uh, lack of fidelity that CGI has. But also, when you're far away, you don't get the clunkiness that you get with animatronic uh, creations. So it's kind of like this film is like the best of both worlds in terms of physical and then CGI special effects. It's it's really cleverly constructed in that regard. And it's... Mm. That technique that I think is is the most important thing about it. I mean, this was one of the things that we've said when we were talking about um, uh, the, the effects that we used in Captain America, the first Avenger. It's not that any one technique was particularly brilliant. It's that they used the right techniques for the right setup yeah. to really sell the, uh, the idea as a whole. And I think one of the things about the way this is presented is, as you say, they're they're using the right technique for the right job and they never use the same technique for so long that your brain figures out the trick. By the time you know what it is you're looking for, they've moved on and they're using something else. Yeah. The uh, in fact of of the two of them, there the there's like a couple of moments in the film where I'm like, oh, that's a little bit, and they're both CG. <laughs> they're both moments where the lighting doesn't quite fall on them, but if they'd been animatronic at the time, they would have moved awkwardly, so they were pretty much um, uh, their their hands were tied on that. I wish Neil was on this one. I was so desperate to get Neil on this episode because Neil's really, really, really big on. Um, uh, animatronic stuff and uh and, and always su- suggest going with that over cgi yeah. uh, i hope i can get him on uh, jurassic park 3 because that's the opposite yeah. <laughs> that's the one where they both suck but the the animatronics actually worse after ellie and alan have both been amazed and even ian malcolm um is you know, has his breath taken away 
Gennaro reacts with, we're going to make a fortune with this place, which I think we've mentioned this before, that inevitable sense of that certain people will not believe something is true. They just will not believe it at all. And then they go from, it is real, it'll probably try and kill me, to it is real, how can we make money off this? Yeah. <laughs> So I mean that Gennaro is is uh, it's a punching bag throughout this film for that kind of person. And and what I love about this film is that unlike um, a lot of science fiction uh, before this, where it was all about science going mad, science going uh, in directions it shouldn't. It's actually the scientists who are the first people to point out that hey. This isn't okay. And it's the money men who want to exploit this project and make as much money out of it as possible. They're the ones who are uh, abusing the, this uh, scientific discovery. It's the scientists who are warning everyone to stay clear. Well, that's the, the epitome of what Malcolm's talking about, isn't it? That, yeah. that through because the the money men the investors they don't have the discipline they don't yeah. have the um the knowledge and the understanding of what it is they're working with what yeah. they know is as you say how they can exploit it how they can turn it into into financial gain but even if you told them how hard won that achievement was it still wouldn't mean anything to them when put up against what they can make out of it. And it is a very um, cartoonish uh, character that they use there. Um, I I think everybody in the film is likable in some way and to some degree, except Gennaro. (laughs) Yeah. We all knew from the get-go that he was going to be the first one to go. Yes, and that everybody would cheer when it happened. Indeed. <laughs> Lyra said that when he got eaten by the T-Rex, ooh, he must have been juicy with fear and hate. <laughs> <laughs> what a marvellous way of putting it. But she's right. Mm. Our form has been extinct since the Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is a manifest thing. Why? It doesn't apply. They're totally wrong. This is a warm-bodied creature. This thing doesn't live in a swamp. This thing's got, what, a 25, 27-foot neck? A brachiosaurus 30. (laughs) 
know, we clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Wow. Put your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant. My dear Dr. Sattler. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Okay, so uh, then they proceed on to the visitor's centre and uh, we get uh, Mr. DNA and Selling the Science, which is another really, really excellent way of, of uh, like, it makes it, like, accessible for kids, but you feel like the kids are being patronised, but the kids in the audience and also the just the regular adults in the audience who are like, oh, this is all just gibberish to me, all get given a really simple, straightforward way of understanding what's going on. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's one of those ones where, like, I know how much everybody loves Christopher Nolan. But Inception and Interstellar are two-thirds explanation of what's going on. And when you see it for the first time, it's a bit laborious. When you see it the second time, it's downright tedious because they're telling you stuff you already know in intense detail. And it actually doesn't really lend that much to the film itself. And I love something like the prestige is really, really excellent because mostly it's there's it's it's focused on character. Um but Inception, I, I can't even really watch it anymore because I don't want to have the mechanics of dream physics explained to me in excruciating detail again. Uh oh, something's wrong. I told him not to go into the dream after his son. He should have waited for the experts to get here. Who are the experts? What's the sitch? Four people in there, all stuck in the middle one's dream. We need to move them all to the next dream level before the projections kill them. Ah! We don't have time for this! Okay, fine. So you're gonna take my son to a dream within the dream, and then what? Then we go into your husband's dreams. Okay. But your husband will think we're in Hasselback's dreams. Okay, wait, who's Hasselback? I am. Are you all saying that you can go into a dream and take people in that dream into their own dreams? Not all the time, just this once, and maybe one other time. It's so complex and cool. Just because an idea is overly convoluted and complex doesn't make it cool. Going to multiple dream levels sounds like a really stupid idea. You just don't get it because you're not smart enough. Let's move! Jurassic Park does it in a way that's light and fun the whole way through. And obviously it's a lot less complicated... But again, it shows the hubris of the scientists, that there's a naivety about it, and uh, they're not quite prepared, and it's not finished. And um, John is so egotistical that he puts himself in the presentation twice, talking to himself in the kind of way that, like... um, uh, that, that, you know, again, Walt Disney would have done, and so there's so much going on there to tell you about what you know the, the, to, to sort of reinforce about the park, to just to, rem- to just to illuminate for you. 
but it's also really great fun to watch. So there's almost nothing of just straightforward exposition in Jurassic Park, and that works absolutely to its strength. So yeah, we, uh, we uh, as I said before earlier, we know what's going on, how it's going on, and uh, as as they're going around and you know seeing the uh, the scientists sort of uh, uh, fiddling with stuff. Um, we know how they feel about it. So when Henry Wu uh, gets asked, what species is this? He goes, um, oh, it's a velociraptor. Like he wouldn't know straight away. And it kind of lends a certain amount of casuality to what they're doing. Like the velociraptors, like leopards, as su- like I'm going to go ahead and guess that as soon as they get to a certain age, oh, hang on, that's going to be disproved by Jurassic World as well. I was going to say that they'll kill you straight away, but uh, it, it would appear otherwise. Either way, raptors are not something that you treat in a kind of, oh, it's, it's one of those things. They're something you have to be very, very aware of. And so Henry's um, blasé attitude here is uh, exemplary of how... They're kind of like, they're not rushing forwards like idiots in Jurassic Park. They're just not quite respectful of what's going on. Almost like it's become too mundane for them, as I said earlier. Anyway? No? Okay. Well, I I mean, I imagine uh, the same can be said for uh, certain kind of like, you know, military weapons and stuff like that. Yeah. I I know... um, Oh God! Why has his name left my head? Um, the, the the British guy with the glasses who has a, a show that every week. Uh, Jeremy Clarkson. No. <laughs> um, uh, community. He's in Community. Why have I? Oh, John his... Oliver. Oh, John Oliver. Yeah. Go. No. Um, I'll start that point again. Yeah. Go for it. Is this about missile I... silos being left open and what? Yeah. 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 Left in, like, like, not yeah. Yeah. I... Go for it. Yeah. Well, the, the scientist's whole approach to the, the dinosaurs kind of reminds me of uh, John Oliver's uh, presentation on uh, the, wep- uh, the missile silos in the US mm. and how all these people, because they're so used to this being such a dangerous thing and have allowed it to become main- mundane in their own heads, are forgetting if we make a horrible mistake hundreds of people could die and and this this you know a velociraptor is an alpha predator at least in this movie that the reality of a velociraptor is quite different but i'm sure we'll get onto that later um (laughs) but um um they're actually deinonychus ladies and gentlemen that's their actual name in this film oh but um yeah um but um yeah they're just they're treating these missiles like they're hand grenades or something like that that's probably a bad analogy but you know what i mean they, didn't they, they have a door propped open with a uranium rod or something <laughs> yeah yeah exactly just it's that might have been the simpsons i i can i can see i can see why this happens and i'm i mean, I mean you kind of have to uh to to a certain degree normalize stuff like this i know doctors and and nurses tend to have uh, black senses of humor simply because they have to in order to do the job they do mm. uh, um, you have to be able to normalize horrors in order to actually be effective in that job um, but um, in this situation you need to have a little bit of fear you need to fear the bear a bit you need to fear the lion a bit because if you don't fear them you don't respect them and yeah. that's when horrible things happen yeah I mean, basically, uh, it should have been a case of, uh, okay, you can handle the Velociraptor, but you've got to put on these steel gauntlets. 
because they could take your damn finger off. Just a, just a little bit of caution, but because they don't show that little bit of caution, you're like, okay, right, what else are they being lax on? Um, and uh, of course, it seeds raptors because there's this like sort of the wonderful you bred raptors moment, and like uh, this thing's going <sighs> and looking at it with its yellow eyes, and then it immediately cuts to the uh, carefully obscured adult raptors, and it sort of it lays the foundation so that you're like, I wonder if that's going to be very important later on. And then, of course, later on, they steal the show. And you really did not expect that going in. I know it's been so long, but let me tell you, folks, when I was 13 going in, we were all going in for the T-Rex. They didn't really emphasize the raptors in the promotional stuff. And so when the raptors ended up being the stars, the Hulk, it was quite extraordinary to just to just realize that there was a whole extra finale to this which you hadn't been expecting and that just that level of oh my god they could be anywhere and just that sort of i mean i i realize now that they were setting up you know the cheetah speed they're astonishing jumpers and they're as intelligent as you know uh, did they say as intelligent as chimps they're certainly getting they're problem solving intelligent yeah rather like alan grant himself it's set up for what may be one of the greatest monsters of all time. Yeah. Uh, or, or animals of all time. Creatures that can hunt you. They should all be destroyed. Ha, ha, ha. Robert, Robert Muldoon, my game warden from Kenya. Bit of an alarmist, I'm afraid, but knows more about raptors than anyone. What kind of metabolism do they have? What's their growth rate? They're lethal at eight months, and I do mean lethal. I've hunted most things that can hunt you, but the way these things move... A fast for a bypass? Cheetah speed? 50, 60 miles per hour if they ever got out in the open. And they're astonishing jumpers. Yes, 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 yes. And that's why we're taking extreme precautions. The viewing area... Do they show intelligence? With the brain cavity. They show extreme intelligence. Even problem-solving intelligence. Especially the big one. We bred eight originally, but when she came in, she took over the pride and killed all but two of the others. That one... When she looks at you, you can see she's working things out. That's why we have to feed them like this. She had them all attacking the fences when the feeders came. The fences are electrified, though, right? That's right, but they never attacked the same place twice. They were testing the fences for weaknesses, systematically. They remember. And as a, as a dino fan, I, I'm really glad they went in this direction of emphasizing the raptors rather than the T-Rex. Yeah. Because the T-Rex, if, if anyone's done any research recently, it turns out the T-Rex is a bit rubbish. Oh, um, don't but, spoil the majesty. <laughs> um, it's the little more, arms, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the more and more evidence is collected, the more it seems like the Tyrannosaurus was more of a scavenger. And if you act look at its design it actually makes sense because it's a big mouth on legs and and it doesn't it hardly has any weaponry to speak of so it makes sense that it just kind of walks over to somebody else's meal gets a big mouthful and then runs off um (laughs) they did they didn't they didn't know this at the time but i'm i'm you know in in retrospect it's kind i'm thankful that they kind of um the 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 T-Rex is kind of more of a second act creature rather than the uh, raptors who are the mm. third act. I want to talk about the raptors uh in a bit more kind of like dino detail. Um the they're not 
the creatures we see on screen, they're not velociraptors. Uh, velociraptors in reality are the size of a turkey. Um, they're not that... Yeah, they're not that threatening. The the species we're seeing on screen is either Deinonychus or the Utah raptor. Both of those uh, species are quite similar in size and uh, look quite similar. So it's either one of those two. But I totally understand why they did the name change, because Velociraptor sounds scary. <laughs> Deinonychus sounds a bit like like, a, like an illness that you might get in Dude, in I your got mouth. Dinonychus from hanging out with those dinosaurs too much. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I understand the the name change there. Um, so was that conscious one? Did uh, Crichton go? Oh, these sound stupid. I, I am. I, I imagine so because Velociraptor that that name conjures imagery that that that's that makes you feel. A cre- it makes you conjure up a creature of speed. Yeah, a creature well, of danger. bird of prey, so extremely yeah. fast bird of prey, and you're yeah. already terrified. Well, I was just going to say, in regard to, to what Crichton um, put in the story, the thing that terrified me in the book, it's not the, it's not the raptors, it's the compies. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, they are just Hammond this, in such a horrible way. Well, just the fact that they're this little thing that you don't expect to be able to... You strip the flesh from your bones while you're still alive. The smaller the carnivore, the worse it is. Exactly, yeah. Like being eaten by rats or something. Yeah. I I think as well, I mean, going into, as far as I can remember, the first time I watched Jurassic Park, (laughs) I wasn't, I mean, I've I've always enjoyed dinosaurs, but I've never looked at them in, in a great amount of detail. But I knew the name Velociraptor if it was called otherwise i wouldn't have known what they were talking about so i think maybe that was part of the, the thought process when did you that, go to see jurassic world you must have been you couldn't have been born at this point uh, uh very funny um well, 93 it's not that how when were you actually born i was born in 1990 well there you go it's pretty close so i di- i didn't see jurassic park in the cinema gotcha uh, i saw it in 90 97 I want to say just in time for you to be able to go see The Lost World though right yes yeah right okay so I mean like what was that like for for Little Midge watching this at home (laughs) Little Midge um yeah it was uh, on the broad broad scale of things yeah it was as we said the mixture of wonder and everything but it was quite terrifying Mm. um Mm. uh, for that age especially like we said the 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 main villain, should we say, of, of the film being being the raptors. But at that age, I, I had heard the name Velociraptor gotcha. and Raptor, whereas, as I said, if it was called otherwise, it would have been like, well, okay. That's I it. think you probably, you may be getting the dinosaur egg before the dinosaur horse here. Um, the... <laughs> Uh, that you heard Velociraptor because everyone was dinosaur nuts from 93 round to about the middle yeah. of 97. T- Tyrannosaurus was a big deal before these films, yeah, but T-Rex. like the Velociraptor was not. Hmm. Uh, and that's why um, this common misconception exists about Velociraptors. Um, everyone thinks of Velociraptors as the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, yeah. when actually they're uh, like turkey dinosaurs. They're not, they're not that threatening. I do but like turkey dinosaurs. 
They if are you tasty. Look for Google images of Velociraptors, you get all of these wrong images of the these um, Utah Velociraptors. That must yeah. really tick paleontologists off. Oh yes, I imagine so. Yeah. This, I think, brings us to, well, we, we, first off, we meet Bob Peck as uh, Robert Muldoon, the hyper-practical uh, fellow. And it's, it's, he, uh, he's the voice. Of, he's Quint in uh, Jaws, isn't he? <laughs> I'll get your raptor and I'll clean him for free. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, he's got that, um, like, no-nonsense side of him. And it's almost like if they'd listened to him from the word go, then, because uh, he's got that caution going on. But uh, uh, um, Hammond sort of treats him in a car, oh, stop worrying. Well, no. But I suppose uh, um, it slows everything down if you do hit everything uh, by, by what he's doing. And ultimately, if you think about it, Muldoon's going to be nursing quite a lot of um, anger and guilt over the, uh, the incident at the beginning, you know, because that happened on his watch. He was the one in charge of it all. Um, it's important, in, at least in my eyes, that this character dies. Yeah. Because he is so prepared for these creatures and the threat they present. Yeah. But even that's not enough. Oh, yeah. And Same as Quint dies. Yeah. It, it sells the danger of these creatures because it doesn't matter if you know all the facts and you're really good with a shotgun they're still gonna get you and and then all you're left with is the the scientists who have no combat experience whatsoever and like that last third of the film you're just like any second one of these people could make a wrong move and they're dead and um despite having seen this film so many times every time that raptor jumps up out, out up through the you know the the ceiling boards like i i i feel tense i feel scared because mm. it's inches away from catching one of them and and these people do not have the strength to fight one of those creatures off that's for sure yeah. um yeah i just a character, a great character, but also I, I think he mainly exists to, to sell the audience on how deadly the raptors are. It's very important that Alan also knows from the very beginning, before he even knows the dinosaurs are now real and exist yeah. again, that he describes the raptor attack for you, just so you can just, again, sow that seed in your head. Of course, now looking back on it, they were totally building up to this and like yeah. totally making you fat, fascinated and terrified. For him to know that and for then to, him to be the one that they appoint as the group's leader to try to get them out of raptor territory, uh, it's, it's key that Alan knows what the hell he's up against and is terrified as well. The dinner time debate. One of my favourite scenes in the movie because uh, Malcolm gets to to come on extremely strong and uh, passionate about what he's talking about. Um, Goldblum's a really fantastic mix of really annoying and smart and cool and kind of sexy. Um, because like, if he wasn't annoying, he'd be uh, uh, like a, a Gary Sue. But because he's annoying, he's like one of those guys that you can understand that everybody would hate him in real yeah. life. He is incredibly smug, and you really do get the impression that every time he gets proved right, even though it results in horrible things for himself, he's going to be sitting there going, told you so. Kind of reminding everybody about it, yeah. Mm. Uh, but he's so watchable and so listenable, and he has all these great lines, and it, uh, so much of it seems like he just thought of it right there. 
which um, either they allowed it's that same way that you know how Tony Stark kind of took everyone by uh, by storming it had that same effect sort of back in the day Every uh, the, he's got so many great lines of um, uh, like when the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down the Pirates don't eat the tourists or um, uh, you, you eventually plan to have dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour you know hello hello <sighs> That kind of um, extremely off-the-cuff way of delivering. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But the fact that he gets all fired up here tells you there's more to him as well because he actually lays down the very real uh, scientific, well, the, the ethical quandary that they're facing, which no one's really confronted up to this point. And um, it's, it's one of my favorite speeches in all of cinema because it can cover so much in terms of uh, our quest for discovery, which is one of the best and worst aspects of us as a species. Close-up look at our majestic... None of these attractions are ready yet, of course, but the park will open with the basic tour you're about to take. And then other rides will come online six or 12 months after that. Absolutely spectacular design. Spared no expense. And we can charge anything we want. 2,000 a day, 10,000 a day, and people will pay it. And then there's the merchandise. Donald, Donald. This park was not built to cater only for the super rich. Everyone in the world has the right to enjoy these animals. Sure, they will. What, we'll have a a coupon day or something? (laughs) (laughs) Gee, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. Well, thank you, Dr. Malcolm, but I think things are a little bit different than you and I had feared. Yeah, I know, they're a lot worse. Now, wait a second, now, we haven't even seen the part no, where Donald, 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 let him talk. There's no reason. No, no, I want to hear every viewpoint. I really do. Yeah, yeah. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Condors. Condors are on the verge of extinction. And if oh, I wish no. to could not know if I was to create a flock of condors on this island, you wouldn't have anything to say. No, hold on. This isn't this isn't some species that was obliterated by deforestation or or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. I simply don't understand this Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery and, and not act? Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. Well, the question is, how can you know anything about an extinct ecosystem? And therefore, how could you ever assume that you can control it? When you have plants in this building that are poisonous, you pick them because they look good. But these are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. Dr. Grant, 
If there's one person here who could appreciate what I'm trying to do. The world has just changed so radically and we're all running to catch up. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, ultimately, um, Gennaro brought uh, in um, uh, Chaotician, who was only ever going to tell Hammond, there is no way you can control this. I mean, Hammond's a smart enough guy to know that chaos theory dictates he can't control it, which is why he got the uh, the other two. But all Alan and Ellie can say is, this park is super awesome. They can't say it's safe. Yeah. Which is, I suppose, what the, the, the plan A was, get them round in a tour, make sure that it would appear everything's safe enough, get them to sign off on it. It seems like a straightforward enough plan. Like it's, it's it's it doesn't come under the whole what was the best you thought was going to happen, at least in Hammond's eyes. Everything like without the um, the the treachery of Nedry that actually would have probably gone through fairly smoothly. I mean the the best the the worst that could really have happened um, would just have been no shows. Given that when he has that conversation with Arnold, um, he says it could have been a lot worse. I think what they were hoping for, certainly what Hammond was hoping for, was that um, Sadler and Grant would have been so overwhelmed that they would have... Sorry, Sadler um, and Grant would have been so overwhelmed that they would have ignored any um, appearance of... Uh, uncertainty about the health and safety aspects. Yeah. The other thing that struck me was they must have had dinosaur experts in already. I mean, like, otherwise, like when the thing hatches out of the egg, what's that thing? Like, get the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, clearly, that's a velociraptor. <laughs> it's in my head. <laughs> Um, they must have had dinosaur experts in, and they would have been contemporaries and even uh, rivals of. Um, uh, Alan Grant. So what yeah. the hell happened to those guys? I, I think, yeah, I think there's a backstory of Hammond uh, firing uh, a great number of scientists who told him no. Yeah, and surrounded himself with yes men who just said, yeah, this is fine. This mm. is A-OK, as they quivered in fear in their own little room. <laughs> it just, yeah, it just... It, it strikes me that Hammond is one of those people, that, as we've said earlier in this podcast, that if you pour enough money on something, everything will be fine. But that's never the case. Like there is, there are so many things that are completely out of a human control. And yeah, I can imagine there's uh, an un- untold stories of scientists coming to work for him and uh, leaving quite quickly when they yeah. realize that this guy is not going to hear no for an answer. And you want to hit, you want to talk about NDAs as well. The amount he must've had to pay off each and every one of these guys. Yeah. 
I also love the fact that when they had the tropical storm, they had actual footage of the actual tropical storm that struck the actual island off the coast of Costa Rica, which they were uh, uh, filming on. It's just kind of like you can almost imagine Spielberg rushing down to the beach going, production value from uh, Super 8. But <laughs> the um, it, it's of course that was going to happen. You're off the coast of Costa Rica. It's not the most calm and even of climates. And I think we worked out when we were watching it that this Jurassic Park really does seem like a like a a first try. Like we're going to make this for the millionaires, and then once they've come to the point where it's mundane for them, and all the super rich have experienced this, then they build it uh, build a, a second one in Florida or um, San Diego, as it turns out. That that the the, um, the second park that regular people can get to. Um, is going to be accessible to, you know, on the mainland. It, it is fortunate that they did it in this particular order because, um, you know, re- restricting the, the dinosaurs to just being able to be stuck on this island uh, actually works best for security. There are, you know, plenty in, the, in, in both books and all three films of the dinosaurs are getting off the island stuff. You know, they stow away on boats, they swim, one of them gets in a small hovercraft. Um, <laughs> One of them steals Nedry's passport. Yeah, I mean these guys are these dinosaurs are smart, like a raptor with a moustache. Anything to declare? Any fruits or vegetables? No, no. <laughs> oh, by the way, I always thought that that uh, can of shaving cream, well, the, with the uh, embryos, and it was going to turn up in one of the later sequels, like that. It was somehow preserved in the mud and managed to retain a certain coolness to it, so that even when the the, uh, the coolant inside ran out. The embryos were preserved, but of course that didn't happen. You might do in Jurassic World somehow. <laughs> Maybe. But just me saying this, uh, it, it'll seem incredibly prescient if that actually happens. Yeah, Chris Pratt's shaving one day. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> dinosaur bursts out minute. of the bottom of the can. <laughs> okay, so speaking of Jurassic World, the target demographic, the kids turn up. Now, as an adult, obviously this should be the bit where you're like, ugh. If you haven't really um, like watched this movie much as a kid, you'd be like, oh, they filled this with kids because kids can't really relate to the film unless there's a kid right there. But it's so important that there are kids there. Someone for them to protect who's absolutely defenseless and someone to be really excited and really scared just to kind of like fire up the adults. Yeah. And they are annoying, but they're the right kind of annoying. Absolutely. Steven Spielberg... Um I, I I can't think of another director who directs children as well as he does, because in every film he has uh, been a part of where children are the focus, um, the performances are great and they feel like kids instead of tiny adults, um, which like that happens a lot uh, especially recently where kids talk like they've had 30 years of experience under their belt <laughs> like n- no kids are a bit stupid it you can be naturally clever but there is an intelligence that comes with being older that kids do not have and that's what i that's what i like about steven spielberg's films is that his kids are always the right level of irritating knowledgeable and playful and curious and what have you and all those things we associate with children yeah. um it, it yeah they, they he really strikes a great balance especially in this film mm. uh, that that's brought into um into light in the, in the special features again 
he he really sat down and spoke to um, the kids. I can't remember the actors' names, uh, but they he really spoke to them as kids, not as um, no. So he spoke to them as adults, not kids, um, and asked them for their input and their like I said playfulness and childlike ability of how they see the situation, and that just adds to to everything that we've uh, that we've said about how they are the the right level of annoying. Not just there as as throwaways, but actual pivotal to to the story and bringing out the the character in um, in Doctor Grant. Especially. It was uh, Joseph Mazzillo uh, and Ariana Richards as uh, Tim and Lex, and uh, yeah, I mean uh, they, they were actually a really welcome uh, addition to the film. Sharon, you mentioned when we were going through the cast um, today. Uh, it's a really small and personal film, isn't it? Mm, incredibly so, yeah. I mean, it, it, when they were going through the um, the credits at the end, there's like, what, a dozen people who have speaking parts? Um, yeah. But there's hardly any swarming extras behind them, apart from the scenes at the very beginning where you've got the scientists still around before everybody leaves. Um, it then becomes this tight, bottle episode almost i suppose yes absolutely it's, it's, it's got a small cast it's kind of like um it's not a million miles from aliens yeah no yeah the, 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 these films uh the, those two films actually share a lot in common companies and organizations and the uh the stupidity of sending these people out into a situation that they cannot possibly handle yeah, uh, yeah. There's there's a lot similar between those two, and they're both exceptionally well crafted films, and yeah. uh, you know highlights of the eighties and nineties. Um, speaking of highlights of the eighties and well nineties and two thousands and two thousand ten, Samuel L. Jackson, yeah, Mister Sammy J as yeah. Ray Arnold, one of those kind of like, oh, it was him. When you come yeah. back to it, yeah. I maintain that this is actually... We've been watching quite a lot of Samuel L. Jackson films recently. Like, uh, we went back and watched... I've never seen it before. Shaft. And I all have heard a shit about Shaft. Like, Shaft's terrible. It's rubbish. It's actually not that bad. Yeah, it's okay. I, it's, I, yeah. But all of these films feel, feel like, you know, episodes in the very, very colourful life of uh, director Nick Fury. Like, he was... <laughs> you know, remember that time I was a, a computer programmer on Island Nubla? And I, I still maintain that he still walked off that island minus one arm, swearing. Yeah. <laughs> Never saw the body. Didn't happen. With the, with the cigarette or with the cigarette. <laughs> just drooping out the side of his mouth. And just like, yeah, in fact, like, the end of his adventure is he just sort of like pulls the cigarette out with his one remaining hand and just tosses it away and goes, I gotta quit. And then uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. made him another arm. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good for them. Cannon. Um... Right, so Electric Explorers, because now we're getting to the tour. The Ford Explorer came out, I think, the year after Jurassic Park, and it had a serious problem with turning over and being... It's an SUV, so it's it's one of those um, like actually kind of dangerous cars that if you take a bend a little bit too fast, it's going to spin over and crash and kill you. Uh, so it's, it's oddly appropriate that, um, that they've kind of like bolted these to the ground these dangerous cars, which obviously Ford would not want you to think are dangerous, and then they're sort of driving them around like a, like a little kiddie's little red wagon, and you're sat in it. Uh, they've, they've made it very... Um, like It's called an Explorer, but you're being led along uh, on rails. 
there's no exploring going on at all. You can't they know explore. exactly where in you're going. In fact, he even said, I think Muldoon says at one point, we should have put locking mechanisms on the cars to the vehicle, stop yeah. people getting out and exploring. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, for some reason they uh, didn't. And thankfully they didn't because when the... Uh, I don't know if they, they would have unsealed when the electricity goes off, but let's imagine that they had remained locked when there's no power. Alan and Malcolm just sat in the car rigid, unable to move or leave the car while the T-Rex just noshed on those kids. I think they probably would have kicked the windscreen through, to be fair. Most likely. Though they do wait an inordinately long amount of time, staring fascinated while it's sticking its nose into the car and and having a a chomp around. They're like, what do we do? (laughs) But, uh, yeah, more to that in a a second. Um, The no-show on the spitter. They tried to make Transformers like this in that you wouldn't really see much of the Transformers for most of the movie, and then suddenly when they showed up, they'd be all, they'd be special. And then they ended up showing you... Well, this isn't the original one. This is the one that's actually better paced than the other three. Because, um, of course, uh, Spielberg uh, co-produced and, of course, didn't really have much to do with the later ones. But it really works here in that you're actually kind of frustrated along with the uh, rest of them. You're like, come on, dinosaurs! So again, you're on this ride and that the whole the meta side of the thing, you're now inside an explorer and the people are actively getting bored in front of you. Yeah. It's the movie's teasing you. And this is also something that happens all the time when you're at zoos and what yeah. have you. You go, "Oh, I want to go see the chimps." And then you find out all the chimps are inside their little shelter because it's too hot and they need yep. to and you're like, "Oh, but I want to see the chimps." But you forget like, "No, these are living creatures. They yeah. that it's you know, they they have their own schedule. They're not just going to come out and entertain you because you want to see some chimps." Yeah. And, and chimps, I'm, they don't like you in all yeah. probability they hate you yeah that's why they throw their shit at you yeah and and having a moment that um is so similar to that and that everyone in the audience can relate to because i'm sure everyone's had a moment like that when they've gone to the zoo as a child mm. it sells you on the world even more like it's for, as you said uh, earlier in the podcast the it's, it's the mundanity that sent, sells you on these creatures being real the I- irony of um like john hammond going and one sick triceratops like oh that was a bad point of the uh, tour that when they get to this downed triceratops it's the most wonderful thing they've ever seen and um and alan sort of like lies on it just listening to it breathe ellie Her cries breathe. ellie cries and laura, again why didn't laura dern have a better career she's so convincing as as someone who's just bowled over by what she's seen this was a case of um, they gave them a real um i say real here is where it comes down to it on effects yeah. you don't need to convince us you need to convince your actors. This is why, practical, we don't quite know why we, whether we can put a finger on it, but if they've got something that looks like a great big triceratops to react to, my God, are they going to react to it better than if they got a tennis ball on a stick. This is why over-reliance on CG... You're right, you're absolutely right. We're too over-reliant on CGI. Um... <laughs> This is why over-reliance on CG draws out befuddled performances. And of course I'm going to bring up the friggin' Star Wars prequels, because that's what they, they changed 
a classically practical filmmaking series into one that was wholly CG and bewildered their actors, none of whom could really be said to be bad actors, but all of whom turned in career lows, specifically in two and three, because even one had some semblance of some real stuff there. But here with Jurassic Park, most of the time they used like a, a like a giant friggin' tri- uh, uh, T-Rex, and rather than just like build the head and stick it on a stick and poke it into the screen, they built most, like pretty much the whole T-Rex. So that you'd have something to film, so that the actors would have something to be fucking terrified of, and so they could sell it to us. You convince your actors, they'll convince us. Yeah. Um, Sam Neill said as well how, how just taken aback they were with the Triceratops especially yeah. and how how real it felt I know obviously you know we've never felt what a real dinosaur feels like but mm. just the from from the look and the scaly skin and how how just incredible it felt and that's why you can sort of see the the smile on his face where he's lying on its stomach and it, yeah. it raises him up when he's breathing and it's it just sucks you in so much more. It's just incredible, an incredible choice to bring out the best performances. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, it's uh, it's 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 Mark Hamill uh, interacting with a puppet controlled by uh, Frank Oz and performing to Mark Hamill with absolute conviction. So then there's this relay back and forth as opposed to Ewan McGregor on his one one knee in the middle of a green room while a green tennis ball on a stick wanders around and he's told that's Yoda oh, I suppose so <laughs> there's a bit in uh, The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe where uh, they got Georgie Henley and said right we're going to show you Narnia but they wouldn't show her until the day of filming so when they let her out into this uh, snowy forest it was actually on a sound stage in LA they didn't show her what it was going to be she knew it was going to be a snowy forest but when she went in there all of those reactions were wholly real and those sold Narnia to us. It's so straightforward. I'm amazed at how many filmmakers don't get this. Mm. Professional, like top of the range filmmakers. <sighs> okay. So yeah, part goes down. Nedry on the run. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, you didn't say the magic word. Ah, ah, ah. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. This is what people thought hacking was back in the day. It was all like super deformed faces on little tiny bodies. It was in golden. I am well. invincible. <laughs> I'm invincible. This is how hacking worked. I mean, it was always keystrokes and you're click. And then, like, you make. I'm. I love. Have you seen Goldeneye recently? I don't know if a spike is real, but they're like, I'm sending him a spike. It probably exists. But yeah, I mean, this, like you could basically just say anything in those days, and no one would really know. And like uh, anybody who did know was to be labelled a nerd. <laughs> Speaking of which, Dennis Nedry, Dennis Nerdy, anyone? Was that was that coincidental? Anyway, Steven he's a, Spielberg is a nerd. Yeah, totally. But this is this was back, if you remember, Sharon. There was a dark day when nerds were not on top. That's true. 
And it required the ascendry of the internet for us to get there. Thank God. I I think, though, the the film is filled with enough hero nerds. Oh, yes. Dennis's character comes comes off as one of those nerds that would align themselves with GG or something like that. He's a dark side nerd. Yeah. So I'm not really bothered by it. Like, he's... A horrible person, full stop. Like I don't, I don't think this is a dig at nerd culture. In all seriousness, now that you mention it, I don't think there's a single person in this movie who's not a nerd. Yeah, Laura That's Dern true. is a plant nerd. She um, is. Yeah. Uh, Ellie Sattler is a plant nerd. Alan Grant is a dinosaur nerd. Ian Malcolm is a maths nerd. Timmy is a dinosaur nerd. Lex is a computer nerd. Hammond is uh, all kinds of things nerd, but he's basically you know, entertainment, and uh, uh, and he he's obsessed with the little details there. Uh, even Muldoon is kind of a nerd in in the fact that he's such a stickler. You know, he's he's a nerd in the way that your dad's a bit of a nerd in in that he's like so very very straight laced and he's nerdy about being so straight laced. He's nerdy about big game. He's nerdy about knowing what animals will kill you the fastest and therefore you, which ones you, know you need to shoot first. But if you started asking him about cheetahs, yep. he would go on and on and on about cheetahs. <laughs> Most devastating killer in the animal kingdom. Yeah. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson would probably go on and on about computers, but he'd, he'd do it in a dispassionate way with a cigarette dangling out of his mouth as if he didn't care. <laughs> there's there's no one who's just, you know, perfectly normal and, and cool and like, uh, there's no control character, which is great. We don't we need to be given the person who doesn't really care much about anything. We get a couple of them in, uh, in the next couple of films. There's no teenagers... Yeah, that doesn't look very scary, is the closest we get. He's not a nerd. So uh, Nedry's on the run, uh, treacherous to all nerds everywhere, and um, and the park goes down and it starts going do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, and then like uh, the, the tension starts gathering, and there's that wonderful bit of scoring by... Um, uh, John Williams, and it's like, you know, mood is gathering, and then they're sat outside the Tyrannosaur paddock, and then begins one of the most perfect sequences in all of cinema. This unbroken relay of tension. Of like, oh my god, that better not be a T-Rex. It's definitely a T-Rex. It better not come out here. It's come out here. It better not go near the car with the kids in it. It's gone near the car with the kids in it. I'll tell you what, Alan and Ian better not jump out of the car. They just got out of the car. Oh my god. Well, he better not smash down the, the, the shack, because then he's going to end up eating the... He did end up eating the... And basically, it's like tension delivery. Tension delivery the whole way through. And just one of the greatest cinematic monster creations ever on screen there will never be a Godzilla for me which is as awesome as this T-Rex I don't care how big it gets not one kaiju that turns up in any Pacific Rim sequel will be as awesome as this T-Rex doesn't matter how big they are what gets me with this scene it's so iconic and the reveal is 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 probably my favourite thing about it the the sound yeah the, ra- the mm. rain hitting the car and then it goes quieter and then you hear the thud in the distance and Ooh. the the use of uh, I again special features guitar <laughs> right frequency to get the water to get the right ripple effect genius absolute genius they couldn't get it to actually like 
ripple like that. They were setting off all kinds of like they were like stamping with enormous yeah. feet near the car, and it was like nothing was working. They ended up threading guitar strings through the car to create that vibration. Yeah. Incredible. The sa- the sound design is yeah as as you say, James is incredible. That roar is as iconic as anything could be. Yeah. Um, so, so iconic that I, I think most people just steal that sound effect whenever they have a Tyrannosaurus in their movie or in their <laughs> TV show or what have you. Because that it's is how a Tyrannosaurus sounds to so many people now. You, can't, you cannot have a T-Rex on screen and not think of that roar in this movie. Um, but it's not just um, the T-Rex Rex's roar, like as you mentioned, like the footsteps, the building of tension, like the sound design in this film is incredible. And sound designers are like they're people that rarely get enough praise because when they're doing their job well, you don't notice it. It's only when you concentrate and actually focus on what's going on in the the sound composition that you realize the genius that's going on in the background. And this, like this, like I I would say that (laughs) 50% of the tension that is generated in this scene is purely due to the sound design because it is spot on. It is perfect. You get the, uh, as you said, the rain and the stomping. Then the stomping stops. And then there's the kind of the growls. And the and you get like the little... Um, I know that then you get the, the clinking of the chain as where's the goat. And then, boom, the sting and the goat leg lands on the screen. I've, I can't just talk you through the freaking scene here, but just the 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 it's again it's the raising the stakes each time, and then you get like the 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 little like forearm just brushing against the fence, kind of just testing it, because I think uh, that would have been electrified before then, and uh, just to keep the wrecks out, because it's not it's not just strong enough to keep it out, because it just pushes through it. And then once it's it's going right, okay, I can just push through this. And then it, it, you see it emerge, and its head comes out, and then its body comes out until it's basically fully revealed, still in the dark. And then it just sort of sets itself down and roars that roar. And I mean, every time I'm watching this, I'm not identifying with the kids being terrified or Alan. Uh, Alan Grant and Ian Malcolm trying to protect the kids. I'm the fucking Rex. I'm just like sort of like planting my feet on the ground, going, <gasps> and Lyra does this too. In order for her to cope with her fears of the raptors, she basically impersonates a raptor and sort of like stalks around the room, clicking her in invisible curved claws, just to sort of like to be the dinosaur, because that's. It's really exciting to embody that in the same way as that kids love the Hulk. There's something awesome about being a creature that's so chaotic, you know? Yeah. Just absolutely. such a force of nature. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's just literally one thing after another throughout this. Uh, and each one of them sort of like just sort of ups the stakes until the Rex is pretty much bearing down on Alan and Lex and, and twisting the car around and it just keeps shoving it around the place. And it's relaying back and forth between practical leg and then like the head comes into view and then the Rex goes stomping off into the uh, near distance and that's CGI. But because they go back and forth between them, you never see the join. 
And so it sells the deal that there is this enormous creature this close. And uh, keeping it almost entirely in the dark, you know, sort of lit by moonlight, and, uh, and just, just keeps it absolutely terrifying as well. But thrilling, in a, you know, terrifying thrilling. Whereas I think I seem to remember in the, um, in the book, I don't want to rag on the book, but it just, uh, I read the book, I think, after the film. And so I was expecting to see that these scenes sort of uh, re-described. But it, it, it's, it's very much a kind of like baleful horror of, oh, my God, you've created this gargantuan thing. It's more like Cthulhu, like, you know, the, these creatures of madness and, and like, you know, they're just so huge and so perfectly attuned to killing that there's no wonder about them. It's just, I really wish I wasn't here, says the person involved. And then horrible graphic descriptions of their deaths. <laughs> And again, that's it's 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 literature, and and Crichton is sort of selling you an extremely um, stark world. But this, with the medium of film, gives us the pictures that and the sounds that put us in that place. you think he's gone when you gotta go you gotta go Speaking of which, next up, Dilophosaurus, finally showing itself. It feels like this is like a, one of the small stars of the uh, the trilogy. This is the only time a Dilophosaurus ever turns up. Do, do you want to 
hazard a guess as to why because i i have a guess i don't i'm not 100 percent sure this is the reason but i do have a guess do you do you want to um, you have i would idea? say mainly because uh if you're actually bringing them in as uh um things to be scared of then they've got to be like now that you know after this we know that they're spitters so they'd have to be spitting at you all the time in which case that uh, or spitting at the subjects the humans um for them to be sort of like trying to avoid it uh, but then you'd be like well you know they're spitters just put on some sunglasses or something like even the dennis nedry action figure had great big sunglasses on and you're like well <laughs> i can't frame the the eating of dennis nedry who by the way was much more svelte as an action figure i might add yeah. um uh, here because he's wearing glasses also because they're not it's not very mobile yeah and i suppose they could have done a cgi one later but it's almost like because you you know it's um attack structure it's less scary and a lot less scary than the raptors so you can't like one up the raptors by bringing in more dilophosauruses yeah. i mean maybe you could bring in lots of them and have them spit in droves and like have someone basically run through a, a gauntlet of uh, dilophosaurus spit yeah, but um, oh, I mean, God, also that like, sounds like my nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it'd be terrifying. But I mean, also like you know, if a relatively well-built person could give it a swift kick. It's only about the size of a kangaroo. Yeah, yeah. And you could probably like uh, do it some serious damage. But it's got that like it looks from the back when it's cocking its head at Dennis like a snake. It's got that kind of like python-like uh, decoration on the back of its like big muscular neck. And then when it goes. Like that, it's like um, what's the name of the lizards that actually do that? Like a flared, crested lizard uh, that like that exists in nature, but it's also got the cobra thing going on. So it's everything we're terrified of snakes, and it's like in this horrible, savage little thing. But the beauty of this scene is it's really funny. Yeah, because it's like Dennis, you should know what this thing is. Yeah. What were you? doing there's only seven dinosaurs on the island seven dinosaur types anyway uh, except for possibly compies might or might not be there because they were never shown in the film but like uh, anyone want to mention want to name the seven? Oh god um brachiosaurs yep t-rex yep velociraptors yep spitty thing yep dilophosaurus dilophosaurus um that's four isn't it triceratops yep. triceratops yep Gallimimus with those running bird-like things later on. Oh, yeah. And then there's this sort of weird duck-billed, horn-billed thing. Was when when Alan says they do move in herds. I don't even know the name of it, but it's there. Oh, uh, so that was the yeah. seventh gentle, like off in the distance, not really the star of anything used as. And most of the time in the weaker section, the weaker Jurassic parks, their herbivores are more used as props. Uh, specifically, the third one. But um, but yeah, so. Dennis should know what this thing is, what it can do, but he's like, oh, that's nice. Like, he doesn't, like, it's got sharp teeth. Yeah. And he's hoping it's not, like, one of your big brothers. He he doesn't know anything about dinosaurs. And so you're like, you idiot. Not so funny now, is it? Because you've watched him be annoying and smug and greedy the whole way through, and you want to see him get his comeuppance. And it's almost like, like when he spins that thing around, you're like, I guess I'll get to the dock somehow. And I'll, like, He's basically put everyone else's lives on the line just for his own greed. So something horrible has to happen to him. But rather than it just being something which just upsets the kids, there's enough of him banging his head and then, like, after the spitter spits in his eyes and he's like, ah, 
it could just have killed him, him, him and eaten him there. And that would have been just like, oh, God, mommy. But then he gets into the car. <laughs> and then actually, like, does this comedy turn to like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. And it's doing it again. And like you can just see, see this kind of moment of, just before it happens. <laughs> Which, um, it's 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 groovy comedy, but it's just right to really kind of sell what happened to Nedry and um, a lot less gruesome and horrible than what happened in the book, which is basically the same thing without the comedy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the equivalent of watching somebody smother themselves in cans of tuna and then jump into a shark, uh, <laughs> a, sh- a shark tank. Like, it's tragic that the person died, but at the same time, it's like, what did you expect? Like, I... I, I yeah, and I, it's kind of why I feel like this this dinosaur is never used again because it's only really a threat because of his ignorance, because yeah, of his. Yeah. Um, with the Velociraptors, that's not the case. They are so formidable that it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're in danger. Whereas yeah. this creature, if you had a baseball bat, I think you could handle it. <laughs> but just a baseball bat and a welder's mask. Basically. Yeah, yeah, and, it's buggered. Yeah, but. Um, Dennis's just complete idiocy means that yeah he 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 dies much the same as this um made up person who smothers himself in tuna and sh- jumps into a tank of sharks it, it's just I love that this actually happened according to you <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine if you've ever read the Darwin Awards I can imagine something oh, like that happening I've thought um, about like ways to do that in podcast form maybe we will do that at some point some of them are just like I think we will. Remember when we did dramatic readings? We might do that for the oh, Darwin yes. Awards. Yeah. I think you're, you're spot on, though, about um, who these dinosaurs take down and how, because the velociraptors maintain their terror by the fact that they take down Muldoon, who could yeah. cope with anything. Yeah. It really shows how much of a threat they, they are mm. to even the most experienced of people. Absolutely. And Arnold, who is Samuel L. Jackson, and you don't take on Samuel L. Jackson unless you are at least three times as hard as he is. I've had it with these motherfucking dinosaurs on this motherfucking island. (laughs) Classic. It happened. Um, So, yeah, after this, the Rex chase. And uh, this is where I've got to extend uh, a, a huge props to Stan Winston, Dennis Murin, Phil Tippett, who gets it in the neck. And uh, Michael Lantieri for the for the dinosaur effects, basically just to name them as, uh, as geniuses. Um, the Rex chase—it's mostly a CGI Rex for this because it's moving at such speed they couldn't really practically stick the um, uh, the, the animatronic version in there. But at the same time, it feels totally real, and uh, possibly due to Laura Dern going shit, 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 which uh, I don't know, just kind of tends to sell it. And the music and the pace of it and the, the camera angle. So you get the Rex eye view and then you get the human's eye view of the Rex closing in. And the fact that it's really gratifyingly short. These days, the Rex chase, I, I mean, I hope this won't actually happen, but would probably last for about 10 minutes, wouldn't it? Yeah. Unless you're Michael Bay and then it lasts an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, again, Michael Kahn, the editor. No one ever gives props to Michael Kahn. Um, this film's perfectly edited. It's yeah. perfectly paced. Yeah. If you gave it to a sloppy editor, they would have messed it up. Yeah. 
and uh, and yeah, just absolutely uh, nailed it. Uh, so uh, we we then go uh, back to Alan and the kids, where Alan asserts himself as a protector. And uh, one of his his journey throughout the film is basically going from being bewildered and annoyed by kids to actually thinking, you know, maybe I could have a small version of myself with you know with Ellie. And uh, one of the reasons I hate Jurassic Park three that much is that uh, he doesn't end up with Ellie within that continuity. Uh, I actually, I operate on, like, uh, this is a recent thing. I kind of want to rule three out of continuity. I don't want it to exist. Because as far as I'm concerned, with the little glances they give each other at the end on the helicopter and Alan sort of like, you know, with the kids on either side, that's it. That's sealed the deal. They've gone through that. They've come out of hell. And um, they've both come out better, um, more uh, adaptable people. And, and they deserve happy lives. And why shouldn't it be together? So uh, while not everyone always ends up together, of course, you know, bollocks to it. Why the hell should Ellie end up with someone else and have Alan mooching around, still a bachelor, pining for her, having to babysit two idiots? But but yeah, I want to strike Jurassic Park 3 from the record for various reasons, actually. And what I hope is that, that Jurassic World doesn't confirm that Jurassic Park 3 happened so that we can just Superman 3 that shit and just say it didn't happen. Yep. Okay, cool. <laughs> so Alan and the kids and the uh, the, the, the brachiosaur thing. And then that, it's, it's a lovely kind of moment where they go to sleep with the brachiosaurs just feeding peacefully in the distance. It's kind of like a, they've wandered into a lost world at that point and the dinosaurs are loose, but not everyone wants to kill them. And that kind of balances it out and gives it a bit of sweetness, which you need after the Rex has just terrified you several times. And the Dilophosaurus. But what's great about this scene is that these dinosaurs don't stop being intimidating. Oh, yeah. Like, these creatures are big enough that if they accidentally fell over, you're dead. Like, <laughs> they are still a danger of in a sort of way. But because, you know... That was proved in King Kong. Yeah. But, you know, because they're herbivores and they're not really interested in you, you can just kind of sit back and appreciate how beautiful these creatures are. Even though, yes... If one wrong step, and if this, you know, the Brachiosaurus that's right in front of them trips over, um, they're not gonna, they're not gonna come out of that well. It's a, but that's, you know, I don't know where I'm going with this point, but I, I just, what I like about this scene is that the intimidating factor of these dinosaurs doesn't go away just because they're not interested in eating you. They're still a powerful presence. It's, it emphasises the majesty of nature, I think, at that point. You've got yeah. these, um, these huge things that, are, that shouldn't exist, that you should never see. And um, it's, I suppose, the, the look of pure awe that you get on their faces when they see them. I mean, even right up... It, this, this is something that I think is, is really impressive as well. It carries on throughout the film. That yeah. never really goes away. When um, Grant sees the uh, Gallimimus, uh flocking around the base of the hill up towards them, for a moment, he's so captivated by them, he neglects to get out of the way. You know, it, it takes the kids to give him a kick to actually get him going um and that i think is is part of what's 
continually great about the, the way the film progresses is that they don't become um, simply a source of uh, fear and um, uh, an antagonist. They continue to be this magnificent facet of nature that they've only just been allowed to be exposed to. And even though they're trying to defend themselves, they're not trying to um, look at it in terms of wiping them out. I mean, even I, I'm not entirely certain of, of how this is supposed to be interpreted. But when Muldoon mentions the Lysine contingency, um, Although it's, Hammond says absolutely yeah, out of the question. Exactly. Now, I, from in the way it's said and the things that are said around it, I think what he means is we can't just wait for them all to die because it's not going to be quick enough. Um, but at the same time, that kind of evokes this idea that all of these wonderful, wonderful creatures just being allowed to die is actually quite an awful thing to contemplate. Yeah. Leading on from that, John Hammond gets to do his flea circus speech here. Uh, again, even if as an adult watching this, if you've started to sort of like uh, feel cold towards Hammond and look what you've done, this speech will win you back every time with the the idea that he's um, he's approached this in a childlike way. You know, he he may be an extremely affluent, rich old man, but he's approaching it like a. a a child who, who so wants something that doesn't exist to exist that he, creation is an act of sheer will. It's like he's a, not a tyrannical little child, but he's just so determined. Like he will do everything he can and, and he has money which makes people work as opposed to being able to do it himself like Tony Stark would. And, um, but he wants everyone else to share his dream as well. He wants everyone else to be enamored of it. Um, I, I love the way that Ellie kind of catches him out on it and goes, yeah, but it's, it's all an illusion. She doesn't say, well, though she could, they're not even really dinosaurs, John. They're creatures. They're, they're mutated frogs. They're things that have never existed ever. They're, um, they're genetic, uh, what would be the word? Um, hybrids yeah they're gelfs genetically engineered life forms and you know they they look like dinosaurs and they act like we would imagine dinosaurs might act but the whole thing is illusion and that's really what entertainment comes down to so rarely in entertainment are they giving you absolutely real because if it's absolutely real then that's more than just entertainment. And that's what he comes across as, someone who wants the unreal to be real and just doesn't see that you can't make it real. Not in the way that he thinks. You can apply Ian's speech about... A kid who's found his dad's gun. Well, yeah, that as well. But this idea of um, so busy thinking about whether you can do something that you don't contemplate seriously enough whether you should, this attitude towards creation can be applied to um, artificial intelligence and artificial life and robotics that are becoming more and more human-like. And this idea that you're 
it's not so much what you're creating that is the the point of concern it's the impact that has on humans yeah and on how they look at things because ultimately it, it would be easy to just say look the original book was absolutely right creation is violent and uh, uh exploitative and we should kind of just like be be happy enough with what we have and also that it is unethical to create uh, artificial life in terms of um artificial intelligence that can think for itself because we aren't taking responsibility for it but ultimately artificial intelligence and synthetic life forms are so key to a majorly likely human evolution if we can survive the next century that it's it's almost unethical not to do that because you're stifling one major avenue of progress for the human race because we're becoming so fused with technology anyway, it's a major step. And it requires discussion and uh, ethical examination. And and all progress is a double-edged sword. Like, yeah. it, it always cuts both ways. Like, the atom bomb, as awful as it is, has meant that we haven't seen a world war on that scale since World War yeah. Two. So as yeah, as world ending as the possibility of World War Three is, no one wants World War Three, um, and and you know stuff like World War Two led to computers and and all this stuff. Like so many terrible things happened during that conflict, but so many positive things came out of it afterwards. Mm. Um, and I, I think people struggle to see. Uh, change and progress in that way in that it is this this thing that cuts both ways rather than being wholly black and wholly white um it is something that you know you've got to take the bad with the good i think part of that is because um it's very easy to see the benefits of anything with hindsight and distance um but these days change happens so quickly that your hindsight is coming so soon hot on the heels of the of what's happened you're still feeling the after effects of the negative while you're trying to sift through well what good came out of this yeah. you know it's it's and actually, gear up for the next change exactly it's i mean it's quite i wouldn't i'm not going to say easy but it's one thing for us to sit here from a position of 60, 70 years later and say, well, these quite good things came out of World War Two. And if it hadn't happened, then, um, you know, I mean, economically, you could argue that if World War Two hadn't happened, America's depression would never really have ended um, or at least would have taken a lot longer to end. But you can say that from a distance away, yeah. Yeah. saying it three, four, five years after when the bodies are still cooling is yeah. very ethically questionable. Yeah, absolutely. Ethically questionable is uh, ripe for discussion, though, and it's uh, key to progress itself. It's uh, If something is not ethically questionable, it's almost like you just go, well, obviously we've got to do this then. You press forwards with it. And um, these questions don't get asked. Yeah. I think the distinction is when, I mean, ev everything it could be argued that's new is ethically questionable. Because if we haven't done it before, we don't have a moral framework for how we deal with it. However, 
it's which side of the line do you fall on in terms of do you do the thing and then have the discussions about whether or not it was ethical afterwards or do you have the discussions before anybody tries anything and then run the risk that it's never going to get tried in the first place? I do think in a modern context that the creation of dinosaurs for the entertainment industry, as long as you factor in... I, I mean, if we're talking realistically, there's no yeah. guarantee that the dinosaurs would even survive in our climate. Um, just because yeah. the uh, composition of the atmosphere itself is so radically different from when it yeah. was back then. Uh, there's just there's so, so many variables that at a certain point, like, I, I can't... It, I mean, it is impossible. But even if it was possible there's a certain level of cruelty just bringing those creatures yeah. into our world which well, it is feasible to do. at yeah. the moment for scientists to recreate a mammoth yes and they aren't doing it because it would cost an incredible amount of money and then all we really get from it is to go wow look a real friggin mammoth that is extraordinary yeah. well what else you got and it that that's kind of sad but at yeah. the same time, it's kind of reassuring that they aren't just doing it because they can. Yeah. 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 Well, it's absolutely. it's like the the uh, query about why is it that whenever somebody's trying to develop something new in in a Hollywood movie, it's always because the military wants it. There's a reason for that. It's because that's about all America will spend large pots of money on. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk for ages about space travel. In fact, we should probably do Interstellar, just so that we can. Um, okay, so can the Raptors come out and play? He's not breathing. Mr. Hammond, I think we're back in business. I think they can. Um, so yeah, uh, they uh, they turn off uh, all the power and uh, the raptors escape. Uh, you get that wonderful little electric fence gag, which um, really makes Lyra laugh. And uh, then um, Laura Dern gets to do her turning on, on the breakers. And um, when the raptors turn up, that's when it takes a turn for horror. Child accessible horror, but like aliens. Again, that's that's where it uh, it comes in, and the sort of the, the creature stalking you in the darkness that actually doesn't make it into that, at least at the time, into that many child-friendly movies. You know, it's it's hot on the heels of the '80s slasher craze, and there's also plenty of creature features back in those days. But um, to actually have like monsters chasing you around who would as we see from the severed arm, which they don't—they unflinchingly show you, these things are absolutely fucking terrifying. And just the sort of the, like, Mr. Arnold, I think we're back in business, and then it just bursts through and goes, right, folks, just so you know, the rest of the film belongs to the Raptors. <laughs> it's a wonderful sudden move into a new act. So yeah, then you know, we get the the clever girl moment, and, and we get the uh, there's the bit with green jelly, 
which uh, I've proclaimed as one of the greatest single shots in, in all of cinema history, uh, because we've, we've now seen the raptors, we've seen how aggressive they are, uh, we've seen them kill the most capable hunter on the island, who didn't even really get a shot off. That's how quick and efficient they were, in the same way that Alan even said they were going to as well. And that's when the attack comes, not from the front, but from the side, from the other two raptors, you didn't even know were there. Or in this case, just one raptor. But it's the fact that it, 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 it pokes its nose out so frighteningly close, it's almost unreal at that point. It's almost like it's going to whisper into his ear. And then it bursts out on him and eats him. And it's it's like, oh my god. And that just took audiences by storm. They couldn't get enough of that. They just it, just this electric thrill. I remember back in the day. I went back to see this film about four times, as I recall. Couldn't not really with two pounds a ticket. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it was it, it's just the the like I say the bit with the green jelly when Lex is staring and the, the the you know she's like oh my god the thing is I don't even know what that is yet because Lex and Tim aren't really familiar with velociraptors they just have to react to them yeah the the key to the raptors being terrifying for me is their intelligence yeah. because. The Tyrannosaurus, as big and intimidating as it is, is dumb as a sack of bricks. Like, all you've got to do is wave a flare in its face, and it goes, oh, it's a pretty light, and it, and it runs off in the other direction. Whereas, you lock a door, you you know, you shut a door, the, the raptor figures out how to open the door. It, like, you can only play tricks with raptors for so long before they figure out the solution, and... Yeah get to you and that is terrifying coming coming up against a predator that can solve problems that can that can figure you out that can you know suss exactly what you're going to do in a certain situation that can distract you with another raptor over there and at you from the side to think tactically about hunting you that is terrifying if they're team working then that is additionally frightening. Because, and this occurred to me, and it never has before we watched it again today, um, the point at the end, or close to the end, where you've got the two taking on the Tyrannosaurus. Mm -hmm. Right. One of those raptors is the one that managed to open the door of the control room and bite at Lex as they pulled her up through the skylight. Okay. Yeah. The other two... Ellie locked one of them in the breaker nope. shed. Nope, that one gets out. How? So she just closed the door, but it got out because uh, it came in through some way. Uh, so that there, there are three raptors. Yeah, well, you've that got... one gets back out. The the one that we don't see at the end is the one that Lex locks in the fridge. Right. Okay. See, that was what I was unclear on because. Um, uh, Ellie says about it, it's not going to she locked it in it's not going to turn up unless it figures out how to open doors but then we don't actually see it open the breaker shed so it was either that one got out or the other one went well unless they figure out how to open the doors <laughs> no, to get uh, its mate out it's, it's too complicated a lock and it's only accessible <clears throat> from the outside when one raptor opens the door and unless they figure out how to open doors that it's just basically saying they did figure out how to open doors. Gotcha. So that one in the breaker shed got out. Okay. 
there were two raptors in the forest that attack uh, Muldoon, and they're the ones that uh, uh, hone in on uh, Lex and Tim. Yeah. One of those two gets uh, locked in the fridge. The other raptor from the breaker shed is the one that joins the one that busts in on them in the control room at the end during the dinosaur skeleton scene. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you yeah. for explaining. No worries. I, I love as well how... Uh, not only is it terrifying that the raptor can open the door, but the fact that the the whole sequence in the kitchen mm. is the kids coming under attack within a familiar surrounding. Yeah, not out, again. Yeah, not out in the open. And having such a relatable environment makes it that much more chilling how yeah. these creatures have adapted to what we take for granted and see every day uh, a, a place where we deem it to be safe and it's just that whole aspect of safety has just been ripped away from us within within a blink of an eye we've skipped past the gallimimus uh, stampede when the t-rex comes out in broad daylight they this was one of their um decisions when they were making the uh, the special effects that they had to look great in daylight if they had to hide it in shadows all the time it wasn't going to be up to scratch there were going to be moments when it was going to be it, the, the light the light wasn't going to fall on it right um but just when the rex comes out it's never looked more real than right there because what it's surrounded by feels so mundane and real and you've got the gallimimus interacting with that log so they're definitely real so that when it eats them it's real they're real they were going to use go motion this is when the, uh they um i think dennis Murin said you know we're out of a job don't you mean extinct um go motion is like do you have you seen robocop Course. Yeah. Yes. Mitch, have you seen yeah. Robocop? Of course I have. <laughs> of course you have. I'd buy that that's, for a dollar. That's how they uh, animated Ed 209. That kind of, it's like yeah. stop motion, mm-hmm. but it's like a maquette, so it's got that kind of jerkiness to it. But they just, they did some test runs on the uh, the, the Raptors and the Rex, and it just looked like Ray Harryhausen and stuff. It was great, but it was the best the 80s could manage. They needed to go further and uh, do it with CG in the 90s. And, um, and then these raptors are testament to the fact that, um, and, and the C, uh, CG um, uh, Rex, that the go motion was at that point outmoded and superseded. Yeah. And, oh, you go. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say what's key is that they are organic living things. Yeah. Uh, in Robocop, it works because you're it's dealing a, with mechanical machinery. And the jerky is acceptable because it's a machine. But when you're having, you know, living creatures on screen, they need to their movement needs to be fluid and and organic. And you can get that from CGI. You cannot get it from the previous technology they had access to. Yeah. Something about the raptors, which uh, none of the other dinosaurs share, and specifically it's this, these sequences and the one uh, in the shed with uh, Ellie, is the disorientation. There are some times when camera angles move around and you're like, right, so the raptor was over there. No, it's not. It's over there. And um, 
it's it's disorienting and frightening the way that the raptor can won't obligingly stay in one place and be a threat over there. It will move to being very very close and to the side, and it's a really excellent way of selling how these things are. It may as well be everywhere when they're hunting you, yeah. that you are not safe anywhere. And so, like the bit where um, uh, Ellie sort of like falls back and then the uh, Mr. Arnold's arm falls down then she moves slightly to the side and the raptor which was over at 6 o'clock is now suddenly at 11 o'clock right by her shoulder and then when Lex comes you know there's that fantastic bit of like um, the raptor can see in the mirrored surface of the uh, uh, countertop oven um, Lex trying to pull down the oven door and like everyone naturally freaking out because they're playing the trick on both us and the raptor uh, so that when uh, that comes through, so you're disoriented there, and then after the um, there's that wonderful moment of silence where like uh, uh, Lex gets away from that, and Timmy's like, "Should I move?" And then when he does, the Raptor was already incredibly close to him, and then it's bearing down on him. But then as he closes the door after the spin around inside the fr- uh, fridge, Lex comes running in from one angle. And then closes, like, locks the door from a slightly different angle, which again kind of makes you feel like, you know, like everything's moving at such speed and the angle keeps changing. It's the disorientation of being hunted. Mm. So there you are right there, the subject of the raptor's unsavory decision to feed upon. <laughs> it's just masterful. It's one of the greatest sequences in cinema again. Yeah. And anyone notice how incredibly unhelpful Tim is during the control room section? Yes. Like, Alan and uh, uh, Ellie are like backs against the door going, oh, I can't, I can't get it. And I said, move the shotgun's right there. And Tim is right behind Lex going, come on, Lex. It's like, Timmy, you're not helping. Go help them with the shotgun. Yeah. But it's almost like they're, they're in two teams. And so the, yeah, the, the kids have to, to, to do their thing and the adults have to do their thing. And uh, okay, it's almost like an achievement that you never actually see these shotguns firing off. When Alan fires off, it's like, Grant! Just after the phones... Uh, Mr. Hammond, the phones are working. Which, by the way, whenever we have a power cut or the internet goes down, whenever I contact Sharon to say, the phones are working again, I just say, Mr. Hammond, the phones are working. It's a really great way of uh, bringing it back. Um, uh, but yeah, the, you never actually see the shotguns going off. It may as well just be a prop. Which I suppose was, like, back in the day... Um, like there wasn't that much in the way of gunfire in um, kid accessible movies you know thinking about it yeah I I'm kind of wish we were at that point now to be honest because yeah. um, I mean obviously in certain situations it absolutely makes sense but like it feels like now we're kind of oversaturated with gunfire and explosions to the point where they've lost their power yeah. and impact. I, I can I can think of a couple of scenes uh, in movies where guns had a lot of power behind them. The, the, the fight in Heat is the obvious yeah. one, um, where guns are truly terrifying in that film. Three but, Kings as well, that's got uh, a horrible depiction of the effects of gunfire and like piercing uh, your organs and uh, sepsis that results from that and 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 watching this film it's 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 kind of i i welcomed the fact that uh 
guns were used sparingly. That, yeah. um, that, but also it allows the 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 dinosaurs to maintain their threat because, as dangerous as these creatures are, like a raptor is not going to survive a shotgun blast to the face. <laughs> like, it's it's not a xenomorph. Like a xenomorph is a superhuman creature that has acid for blood. Yeah, they. I mean, th- this is a creature that can survive in the vacuum of space. Like, yeah. I can believe these creatures having like uh, multiple guns fired at them and it still not slow them down a velociraptor if you're good with a gun you could kill one and so the lack of uh, artillery in this film actually helps it because it, it makes the creatures more terrifying and the escape through the vents again like uh, was it you james who said that the when the raptor jumps up to grab at lex after she's uh, fallen through uh, again just it makes it she's it's always just like a hair's breadth away and it it's like we've seen it a hundred times we know she's not going to get grabbed even if we were seeing it for the first time we're, as adults we'd know they're not going to kill Lex are they? <laughs> I mean it happened in Jaws but we didn't know the kid it's 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 the the whole lead up of the of the scene before that really just even after watching it 10, 15, yeah. 50 times. Your nerves are jangled yeah. enough for it to be a kind exactly. of... Exactly. <gasps> it sucks moment. you back into the intense scenario that's, yeah. that all sort of recollection of previous watches sort of, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, go out the window. So uh, you, you're sucked right back into the action and then relieved with the, with the positive outcome of, of them escaping. That's true, actually. I I was really surprised about how the the impact of most of the emotional beats, you lose nothing from watching it over and over again. And I speak here as somebody who watched it literally every week for about 18 months (laughs) because um, the kids that I used to babysit for when I was about 14, 15, they had two films on video. They had Jurassic Park and they had Beauty and the Beast. And every single Saturday when I went to babysit for them, they would want to watch Jurassic Park before bed and then I would watch Beauty and the Beast after they'd gone to bed. (laughs) You didn't reserve that same dislike of Beauty and the Beast when I first met you. Well, no, because I was choosing to watch that. Right, that's different. <laughs> yeah, it took me a long time for, for to get to work, showering around to to loving Jurassic Park. I think she kind of got caught up in how much I loved it, yes, and that I, I was, think that was part of it. Yeah, I sold the wonder back to her. You did, yes. Um, but yeah, the the original ending. Um, <clears throat> when they crash onto the skeletons, it was going to be this weird kind of like, well, wasn't that lucky? Because the skeletons fall down and crush the raptors to death, and the humans walk away. That's a terrible ending. Yeah, yeah. That's like, oh, well, the raptors weren't smart enough to realise that heavy things falling on them was, you know, going to be uh, after everything they've done before. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it seems like they should have much tougher bodies than the humans, in fact, um, and that the humans shouldn't be able to walk away. Uh, I can't remember exactly what happens in the book, but it's a lot less visually dynamic. Um, but the Rex turns up doesn't matter whether we didn't hear him stamping. There was a lot of crap going on. A lot of things came clattering down. I, can, I can imagine basically he, he pretty much walked up to the... There's a great big hole in the entrance obligingly there for him to walk straight through. Oh. I'd imagine he's actually... Uh, sorry, her. That uh, she's been popping in and out of there every so often because she smells um, humans and raptors yeah. and uh, yeah, fancies I, a, a snack. I think as well, if we had heard the... Uh, if we had 
heard the T-Rex coming, it would would have lessened that sort of Absolutely, dramatic of impact yeah. of of the fight between the Raptor and the yeah. T-Rex. So there was it was again a, a great choice to it it, it would have yeah it would have taken the impact away from that, but it would have drawn you out of the immediate danger of the Raptors, the, yeah. the raptors attacking yeah. the humans. So again, as I said, perfect choice to not reveal that until the last second to keep everything... There's just that terrible yeah. moment when they're, they're, they've, the, the skeletons have fallen down, they bunch together in the middle of the room, and there's two raptors now, and it's like, we're fucked, we're fucked, we're fucked, we're fucked, we're fucked. And the raptor is just going... And like, just about to spring, and then... then, then, then Boom! As this triumph, as the T-Rex enters to save the day. This is, as I mentioned, the Godzilla moment before. This is when Godzilla turns out to be, you know, this big destructive force of a monster, but also somehow the saviour. Yeah. Mm. And it's a great way of taking out the raptors without diminishing their power. Yeah. Because if they were just taken out by some clever plan that the humans came up with, that would have been like, oh, well, okay, the raptors weren't that big a deal. But <laughs> they were as intelligent as chimps, but chimps aren't as intelligent as humans, so... <laughs> yeah. Whereas having this... For- you know, the T-Rex is a force of nature. There's a re- I mean, it's a stupid animal, but it's so big and dangerous that the the raptor's intelligence is kind of um it's it it's useless against this creature because all they could do is jump up on its back and mm. bite it a little bit and go ah, please die uh this isn't really effective is it and then the t-rex takes them out it's it it's a great way of look these creatures are still incredibly dangerous to our humans so it, it's it's the whole like you know, you take you take out um, the guy with a gun with a bigger gun. You know, what I mean, like it's it's still scary, it's still dangerous, but that like I don't know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> no, it's it. just I think you get what I'm trying to say. Like you take out the big scary thing with a bigger scarier thing, rather than it just being the triumph of humanity over over nature. No, nature always wins. Sometimes nature screws other other parts of nature. Humanity doesn't win. They just so, get out by the skin of their teeth. What you're saying then, Josh, is if you want to take down the rock what you need is Jason Statham. Yeah, that yeah, basically. <laughs> and even then. Yeah, even then it's just it's mostly luck and trucks. Statham was limping away yes, after that. Indeed. So, in all seriousness, that second raptor, once the first one's been chomped, should really have gone Jeez it! I'm not gonna take out a Rex. What are you talking about? Jeez I'm gonna go and let Fred out of the fridge. Jeez. You know, with two of us together, we might be able to somehow take it out or just avoid it. I mean, we're faster than it. We're cheetah speed. It's it's 30 miles an hour. We're 60 miles an hour. You do the maths. But, um, yeah, no, instead it, it rather foolishly sets itself against the wrecks and uh, comes a cropper. But it, it had to. And then there's that wonderful kind of when dinosaurs ruled, the earth comes fluttering down. And it's this, like, orgasmic finale. Yeah.
the meantime, throughout the uh, second and third act of the movie, uh, uh, Malcolm and uh, Hammond have been hanging out together as the B team, kind of with Malcolm basically just saying over and over again, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. And uh, uh, Hammond, uh, you know, fighting to sort of like, well, I'll maintain some kind of control. In the book, Hammond had wandered off, uh, you know, came a cropper to some compies and ended up being nibbled to death. Um, in the uh, book, I think basically the same thing happens. Only they don't get Hammond off the island, and um, then Alan and Ellie end up in a hotel and they speak to some journalists and they say, well, "What happened to Ian Malcolm?" And he just sort of shakes his head and it's like, "Oh God, Ian Malcolm died of his wounds." And then uh, uh, Crichton later went back and sort of retconned that and went, "No, Malcolm didn't actually die." But basically, in the original book, as written, Malcolm dies as well. Which is depressing, and also there's this thing about you know we're going to answer a lot of questions for the uh, the government of of um, uh, Costa Rica, and uh, it looks like the kids get to go home, but we're not leaving anytime soon, and it's all this big government conspiracy and cover up. And as they're flying over the island, the the animals are all roaring at them as they're about to get destroyed by napalm or nuked or something like that, and it's this really depressing kind of well, let's just destroy the thing that we created, this giant mistake. And again, I'm sure there are going to be plenty of uh, uh, Crichton fans out there who say that they love the book and they love this. But um, just the fact that it ends here on a very personal, very quiet bit of piano music and Hammond just gazing back into the park, knowing that no one else is going to be around to take care of these dinosaurs because he's leaving them. And then sort of looking at this piece of amber that's been on the end of his cane the whole time with this sort of wistful, I had such plans for this place i was going to show people such wonders and it all went to hell and i'm not sure what i can really make of this one as this wonderful kind of like sad moment for him but at the same time because this is the end of the ride this is when the roller coaster goes and then just starts taxiing back into the uh um, original place where you got on in the first place. It gets back onto the helicopters where they, they were on there in the first place. And everyone looks like they should really be scarred and terrified. But looking at them, Alan and Ellie seem like they're more alive than they've ever been in their life, exhausted though they may be. And as I said earlier, Alan's made his step towards, yeah, maybe I could have a couple of these guys. And um, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful ending. Agreed. Yeah, <laughs> totally agree. So, finally, focusing on the uh, the birds flying away, and as I said before, the I'm not sure if they were trying to make the um, comparison to us feeling about kind of fragile about our time on the Earth, but dinosaurs existed in some form or another for millions upon millions upon millions of years. Yeah. Um, and if you, I think basically, I think. Bill Bryson made this comparison. If you stretched out both arms as far as you could possibly get and reached, like, you know, T-sign on either side, that's the lifespan of the Earth so far. You could, with a single stroke of a nail file, wipe modern man from history just with one stroke of one fingernail at the end. That's how long we've really been intelligent and dominant on the planet. And it is temporary. And this has ultimately one thing that sort of Alan says, almost as a throwaway remark about, I guess we'll have to evolve too. He's kind of talking about the human race in terms of like, you know, that technology is caught up to the point where 
our comprehension of what's going on is outstripped by our ability to create something new. And it's, it's kind of wonderful and scary, and it really needs to be handled in this way rather than um, science is a terrible, terrifying thing and should probably be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a wistfulness to the music, and, a, and a kind of, there's a sadness but a hope in it, and it's, it's just... This film says more about the human condition than I think anybody set out to, um, to intentionally lay down. At least in my eyes. I'm inferring a hell of a lot. It's not <laughs> difficult to see how, though, because it is it is so um, clear and I don't want to say simple, but it's very um, straightforward about its message. And like I said, by, by making it this very intimate story about how this small group of people relate to each other, um, it, it's... You could argue that that is humanity yeah. in in the um, in the sphere of evolution. Hmm. We came along. We were completely unsuited to cold climates. We were completely unsuited to be able to um, get enough food to sustain us in the uh, environment that we were in. Um, we were unprotected from both elements and predators. All we had going for us was our brain. And through virtue of that and through virtue of sticking together and working together whenever they possibly can, this little group of people managed to get out of it and come through this period of, you know, being dominated by things which are so much older and bigger and better suited to their immediate environment than you are. Mm. And now we've completely removed ourselves from the food chain entirely. Yeah. Um, the the only thing we truly fear now are the tiniest of organisms uh, in uh, that exist on our planet, like predators, like bears and and sharks and what have you. The the things that we used to be terrified of as prehistoric men are minuscule compared to the the death that our, our species can unleash with the press of a button. Um, yeah, it's 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 just yeah. It's kind of scary to think about like what we're what we're capable of, and that that's what this film is about. Like, what 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 can happen if we lose respect for the power our brains can give us? Jurassic Park drops Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with everyone in that in that regard. Yeah, it's scary but beautiful. Okay, folks, uh, we will be back next week with The Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park. Okay. Uh, thank you guys very, very much. Would you like to pimp your various shows? You can find me on uh, .com, uh where you will find a podcast where we take a game and analyze it and dissect it in detail. We're currently uh, running a series on the Silent Hill games, which uh, I'm heavily involved in and has been one of my favorite video game series to cover. Even the rubbish ones um, have been really exciting to talk about. Mm. Um, you can also find me on YouTube 
YouTube. Um, I do a series of videos called The Animation Archives, where I take a film or a TV show and discuss the themes and ideas that are present in, uh, in those uh, TV shows and movies. Okay. Um, I am the host of An Alternative View on Movies, which is my independent movie review website. Uh, that's at alternativeviewmovies.wordpress.com. Uh, I haven't bought the uh, URL yet, so I'm in the process of doing so. Uh, I'm also under that name on YouTube, where I publish video content. Uh, on my website, I do uh, written movie reviews, video reviews, uh, first impressions of the latest films I've seen in UK cinemas. And I also have a series which I love called Blue Yay or Blue Nay, where I take a Blu-ray and review it as a complete package. So on its uh, box art, special features, sound and picture quality in the film itself, I'm in the process of doing um, some Blue Yay or Blue Nays on the Jurassic Park trilogy to release alongside these shows nice. coming out. Um, so yeah, they'll be coming out soon. And... Uh, my most re recent written review is on Woman in Gold, which is out in UK cinemas now. So you can find that uh, on my website and other videos on YouTube and alternative view on movies. Uh, and I'm also the uh, I'm also a co-host of the Game Burst podcast, which is a twice weekly gaming podcast where we take a look at the latest gaming news. And uh, each Thursday we'll have either a roundtable replay unplugged or quiz and i host the quiz on game burst as well thank you james thank you and if you folks want to listen to something that was very much inspired in tone in many areas by jurassic park new century my alternate history science fiction audio drama podcast which is actually now as by the time you listen to this will have been branching out to even more than alternate history so exciting things are happening New Century. Check it out on iTunes right now. Okay, we'll be back next week with The Lost World Jurassic Park. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural, Neural Handshake, Handshake com Complete.
have a go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's nice. Oh, that's n- actually while we were watching it, Lara went, "Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's not nice." <laughs> 